Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner, and you are listening to Tent Talks. I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet because this podcast is extremely long. In this podcast, I speak with my colleague and friend, Darian Spearman, fellow PhD student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut. In this episode, we talk about everything under the sun, politics, socialism, capitalism, race relations in America, artificial intelligence, automation, the prospects of universal basic income, drugs, the nature of science, scientific revolutions, and many more topics. It was an intense podcast and an enjoyable discussion, as it always is with Darian. So without further preamble, I give you Darian Spearman. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. Let's just, well, let's just jump off right um, with what we were talking about before we started recording. I was just thinking, because we were talking about the violence in the 20th century. Yes. And I've heard some people say that Nietzsche's death of God and the kind of falling of religion and the prominence of society had something to do with that. And they'll point to the fact that a lot of the most evil dictators in the 20th century were atheists and how this just kind of collective non-belief in God opened the doorways to the hell and violence that we saw in the 20th century. And I've never oh, it didn't. I've never known how much of a connection there was there, if any. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, like, different layers in this, right? And that's one of the hard things about uh, conversations about topics that are span, span, span centuries is that there are multiple threads and strains that get collapsed and but there's also like a a readily understood acceptance of history that is in the background right but when you try to actually bring all it out then it gets kind of messy so in terms of like the death of god um nietzsche is talking about unleashing of human potential that he feels is stifled by christian morality and christian society in particular Right. So, um, and that gets to the distinction between passive and active nihilism, right? Because he he is kind of this nihilist, and there are two responses that you can have once you accept the conclusion that there's just utterly no meaning in the universe. One, you can just kind of accept it in a passive way and be depressed. Or two, you can create a new, you know, launch new values in society based upon what you think human potential is capable of or something like that. Yeah. And that's the more active side of things. And that's more of Nietzsche was talking about. But the thing is, um, the horrors of World War Two, especially, but and World War One, but World War Two is what a lot of people link to as like this opening of like the eighth, the gulags and the prisons and yeah. all that stuff of the 20th century. Um, these kind of horrors have been foreshadowed and developed for centuries before that. In fact, within the very framework of Christian, um, Euro, Euro, European Christianity, these notions were developed with the idea, for example, that um, like terra nullis, I think that's how you say it, that um, these lands, the lands of natives or Africans are effectively empty because there's no Christians there. Mm -hmm. Therefore, anything can be um, done to them. The idea that they need to be, people need to be civilized from being savages or Christianized. They need to see the light of God. Yeah, and so that was used very much to, to justify atrocities from slavery to um, um, 
the stealing of wealth and cultural resources from people, yeah. all kinds of things. And that, like, Amy Césaire, he's a was a poet and uh, philosopher from Martinique. He wrote a book called um, "Discourse on Colonialism," which was a reference to "Discourse on Method" by Descartes. Um, and one thing he says that is that basically the um, the concentration camps in Germany, but I'll extend that to the USSR as well, were basically like the fruit of all this tech, all these techniques and technologies that were developed to dominate people, mm. right? Because um, people have people, a lot of people when they talk about s- socialism and Nazism, all these things, the question is, where did these, where did this come from? It's not like they were like in 1920, there was this revolution in Germany. Suddenly they developed all this complex knowledge of how to build prisons and warehouse people and organize people and kill people, and make them work for free. That was already been going on for centuries before these things occur, and they were building off that, yeah. right? And so, um, so the question of whether or not the reason why I say it's complicated because a lot of people, especially Black Christians, but even European American Christians, Latin, a lot of people have said that these things from the beginning, since the 1700s, have been saying this stuff is ungodly, mm-hmm. right? But it's still been within this system for centuries before it emerges in what we might call the gulags or things like that. So it's, it's, it's yes and no. On the one hand, it's, it is, um, un, a lot of people have argued that it is ungodly and that it doesn't reflect the highest ideals of what God's supposed to be. But on the other hand, it isn't ungodly in the sense that a lot of the modern Christian world and a lot of the wealth that European nations develop were done by these exact same methods. That's always, yeah, that's how I felt about it. Just that human beings have the disposition for violence and they can justify that in a myriad of ways. And if religion's the dominant feature in society, then they can use religion to do that. And if it's not, then they can just act it out in different ways. But yeah, yeah I've never been convinced that we need God in order to live a moral life, generally no, speaking. I don't, think you, I don't think you need God, but you do need... Um, I do think you do need like deeper, some path towards deeper awakening or deeper awareness. Yeah. Um, and but you are finding, and this is part of my interest now. You are finding some limitations into how the secular response to the European Christianity structure, how limited it is, right? And that yeah, and, this and that it hasn't it hasn't. People like, for example, depressions on the rise, right. suicides on the rise, these various economic and um, political trends that are destabilizing and displacing people and have been going on for centuries. The move towards secularism or move towards away from religion hasn't necessarily really stopped those, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, there. I mean, much of the 20th century, and I think we, much of the later half of the 20th century and a lot of the 21st century for people who aren't who are moving who want to move away from the religious framework is this question of what's supposed to replace it and what's going to replace it yeah so this is a good segue into some of the automation and ubi stuff there does seem to be a crisis of meaning meaning in contemporary society as you say depression suicide are on the rise i think last year if i'm remembering correctly the average lifespan for a person in the United States went down for the first time in however many hundred years, yeah. mostly because of the rise in suicides. I think. It was what? I think it was related to men particularly, too. Yeah, it might, yeah, it might be. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Right. So then, Ed, so then the question of automation comes in because it seems like you know, going back to meaning, it seems like a lot of people derive their meaning in life from their jobs, yes. from their work. Yes. And now we're we're entering a time period where we're seeing a lot of the new technology going to displace people. And you know, truck drivers are going to be some of the first people, but it'll they'll displace more and more jobs as the technology gets increasingly sophisticated. It seems like jobs that involve creativity and that really demand that human element are safe for the time being. Mm-hmm. But this automation is coming, right? The technology is not going to stop. Mm-hmm. So, right, there are a couple problems as we talked about yesterday. There's the obvious economic problem. What are these people who don't have any other skills going to do once their jobs are displaced? But then there are social problems as well, and there's this problem of meaning, right? Even if we get to the, and this is the thing, imagine the first, imagine the best possible scenario, right? The utopia that we want. First, mm-hmm. well, first of all, I think. Go explicitly going for a utopia is an easy way to lead to a dystopia. But even if we get the utopia where we have machines that have completely eliminated human drudgery, where we don't have to work, mm-hmm. how are people going to get their meaning in life? Because like we just said, we grew up in this world where our meaning is explicitly tied to what we do. It's the first question people ask. What do you do? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, and then there's the increasing atomization of society that we talked about as well, right? Mm-hmm. We have Amazon that's about to introduce a grocery store service where you don't even have to go to the grocery store anymore. You can just have this shipped to your door. So we're not inhabiting these social spaces. You know, put religion aside. Yeah, we're not going to the church. That's a social space that we used to cohabitate. But it, it might get to the point where we're not even cohabitating a grocery store together because mm-hmm. we don't need to mm-hmm. because of the increasing technology. So we're becoming more lonely, more atomized, and we're entering a future where we potentially don't even have to work. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's not necessarily a good thing, you know, but um, yeah, so I've just thrown a lot out there. But yeah, these are all related to what you were just talking about, about this crisis of meaning that secular secularism has facilitated. Yeah, I mean, the, the crisis of meaning starts even earlier than secularism. The, the problem is just that secularism hasn't necessarily provided the best answers because it's still wedded to a lot of these um, meaning destabilizing um, philosophies or myths, such as like the supremacy of Europe, um, the the need, the idea that everyone has to work a job for their meaning, um, the idea that the West owes nothing to the rest of the world for the history of colonialism, um, all these things that prevent connection, reinvestment, other people, it, it trickles all the way down to this atomization, right? Um, and what you brought up is one of the main problems of, of the 21st century, right? Which is what, is, what is human life supposed to be, right? Because in previous <laughs> times, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, it's a problem in every century, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be more clearly now in the sense that you have a population that's very educated, Mm-hmm. Um, but edu- and educate in a way that's more um, closer closer to liberal arts structure, right? And that you you go to college, even if you go to a large or state university, or whatever, you're still going to take English. You still probably you know you have electives, and you're supposed to take history. So you gain this kind of knowledge or perspective, and but then there's no real outlet for that, mm-hmm. and. The actual work that you're supposed to do is just 
higher level computation that machines can't do yet mm-hmm. right a lot of times it's like moving like someone's talking about like secretaries secretaries are basically ways by, by which different systems or institutions can communicate to each other right you need someone to sign this send this over here go talk to this person talk to that build a relationship with various people and right. allow information to flow between various systems but as information processing gets better and better and better then you don't really need machines. you don't really need secretaries anymore as a as a role right mm-hmm. and there's idea of, but that is replacing with a machine that does it better but of course really good secretaries do way more than that right really good secretaries they know people and some of them are intelligent enough to even contribute an ad right to these grand ideas there are things that secretaries might have suggested or added that the people in the company will never give them credit for but because that person's around them and, and, and all the time and hears their conversation and that person talks, that person might just share their ideas. And people who, and people at the very top, they're never going to give up a personal secretary, <laughs> right? Because that's way But There's no machine that's going to be able to, that's gonna be able to match a person that knows you and can connect to other people, right? Right. So even if machine can, strictly speaking, perform all the duties that the the job entails, there's still that human element that you want and that you value. Until we create machines that are able to pass the touring test with flying colors and that can convince you that they're conscious. I don't think that. I don't think if you could choose between... Or might actually be conscious. I mean, it might be, tw- it might be based on your, I guess, your, your industry, but I can't imagine why if you could, if you could, if you could get somebody who was like a, like a very intelligent... Um, person from a good family that has connections, why wouldn't you pick that person to be your secretary rather than like a machine? Well, what if the machine can perform a lot of the duties of the job at a faster rate and more efficiently than any human can, right? Maybe, but efficiency doesn't necessarily get you connections. Yeah. Because yeah. as we see with how our, like, our political structures work, right, like there's a lot of incompetent people who are in positions of power because of their connections or their ability to connect to others. Yeah. Right? Um, one guy, apparently, he became president, right? A lot of people said George Bush was very incompetent and Dick Cheney was the real president. You know, there's that narrative. Right. Um, and a lot of it had to do with his connections and his connect is really to connect to people. Steve sent me this article the other day that the results of this study that was run was that artists are successful if they're connected to people, and their mm-hmm. success is not a reflection of the quality of their work. Yes. Which I'm not surprised by at all. Mm-hmm. Most of it is who you know and who yeah. gives you the right opportunities and all yeah, that. Yeah, and that's, and that's not a terrible thing. It's, it's only bad in that the, 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 the story of America is that we are a meritocracy, mm-hmm. right? When reality is things like connections and um, wealth that help you generate more wealth and more connections. And we see that with this scandal that just emerged. That just broke yesterday, yeah, right? Yeah, where these, where these people were paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their kids into colleges. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times by faking being in sports or being able to fake SAT scores mm-hmm. or get people to look the other way or all kinds of stuff like that. And so if this is the reality of what people are trying to do to make sure their children are successful, then, the, then there has to be something in these institutions or something in this connection or network that can't be automated. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people who are super invested in automation um, already have a lot of those networks and structures. Um, now with with Andrew Yang and Universal Basic Income, 
he's he he at least says that he knows that UBI is not the solution. It's just a way of addressing this this larger problem of the fact that human labor is becoming less and less necessary for to meet certain like basic processes or computations. Right. Um, yeah. But, so just for the listeners, what exactly is his proposal? So I've I've watched some videos of him where he outlines it and it seems like the basic idea is that every month or so every single american is just going to get a one thousand dollars or something like that every adult no questions asked and he frames it as not a left or right issue but just we need to move forward you know this isn't about conservatism it's not about socialism it's just this is the technological cultural predicament we find ourselves in at this moment in time and here's a solution Right. Yeah, there's no that, po- there's no political agenda that's driving this isn't forward. It, isn't it? Isn't that? I should tell you something. Isn't it funny that someone could be up running for a political office but claim that they have no political agenda? Yeah, but <laughs> he I mean, definitely I think, has one. Oh, well, yeah, sure. But I think he's sincere in that. He just thinks that this is the best way to solve the problem. I don't mm-hmm. think that this suggestion is the manifestation of some socialist ideology that he has from what i've seen but no he's actually he's actually not i was talking to people in a a class last week andrew yang is in my book he's he's a he's a conservative Mm. um in a sense that he wants to like like if you hear the language that he says one he doesn't really talk about issues of um race or gender right he leaves those he leaves those completely out the door yeah in terms of his rhetoric or his discourse, mm-hmm. um, and some of those some of those issues that are people are fighting over are not reducible to stuff like UBI, right? But he but he doesn't talk about those. Um, he also believes that what the tech that the tech giants should continue to have their power and grow, right? If you think about Elizabeth Warren, she's like, we need to break up Facebook, we need to break up Amazon. They're too big. Yeah, I want to right. talk about this too. Which is which may or may not be a good idea, but you can see that someone saying, "No, no, Amazon should keep growing. We should just get a slice of the pie. America is a company, and we get a dividend, right?" So even the language of it's that the language of America being understood as like a business or citizens as shareholders mm-hmm. is already a more conservative. You know, this is back, this is exactly what a lot of right, you know conservatives talking about in the '80s and stuff. But when I say conservative, I don't I don't mean bad. Right. I just mean like as in terms of because a lot of people would frame Andrew Yang as like a progressive or as a social just because yeah, they associate socialist. universal basic income with socialism yeah, and things like that. He's actually a conservative. He's just that it's just that the facts it's just that our our right wing politics are so divorced from reality that to even try to actually look at the real facts of the world makes you like not on the right, <laughs> you know. Like he comes as matter of fact, because I noticed, because like, because one thing that, because one thing that lets me know that he's um, more of a conservative is that so many conservatives like him, right? Because he's because a lot of the right wing people they don't actually have a real discourse or a real set of policies that actually fits with what's going on in the world, right? There are some yeah. things that you can yeah. no longer you can no longer contest. You can't contest. You can't contest the fact that human labor is becoming less valuable. You can't contest the fact that the war on drugs hasn't worked. You can't, cont- you know, there's so many basic things that there's evidence for, but there's a large contingent of um, Americans who, whose whole identity and lifestyle is based on certain uh, falsehoods, right? Yeah. That, I- the idea that poor people are leeches and that drug users need to be jailed and that, 
you know, I'm better than them for these reasons, or that America's the greatest nation in the world, we need to spread Christianity everywhere. Like, a lot of these people have this sense of self that comes from an older model of society. And Andrew Yang is actually representing well what, um, what should be um, the conservative Republican response to some of these challenges. Like, no, don't break up the businesses. Don't just share the wealth more, right? Um, and I'm not gonna talk about things in a racialized way. I'm gonna center um, um, working class white males, right? Which I don't have a problem with that, but that's one of the things that he does, where right? he talks about truckers and these types of peoples, right? Whereas if you look at other politicians, like, oh, this is black person I know, or this woman I met, you know what I'm saying? He, Andrew Yang very much centers working class white males. Yeah, but I feel like that's just kind of a coincidence. Like, it just happens that working class white males are the people that are more likely to be truckers. I think he's first and foremost worried about the jobs that are going to be automated away first. The first being truckers. Truckers, by and large, I guess, would be. No, no, it's. White males. it's I don't though, know. I, no, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that what he's, what he's doing is, is wrong or disingenuous. Yeah. But I'm saying is that. <clears throat> That he could tell the same story in a different kind of way. Yeah, he's just, he just he's just not right. And I do like I agree could, with you. I can see why conservatives and some people that voted for Trump might like uh, his vision and his rhetoric. Just because, from my point of view, a lot of people and this isn't a novel point. Mm -hmm. It's a point that many people have made. But a lot of people, I think it's right. There's some truth in it. A lot of people voted for Trump because you know the people in middle America feel like they're being left by the wayside in a lot of mm -hmm. different ways, technologically speaking, culturally speaking, mm -hmm. right? They feel like there are all these whatever elites on the coast or whatever mm -hmm. that are uh, <coughs> that are these elites on the coast that are controlling the narrative and that are controlling the culture, mm -hmm. right? And you have all these people telling them that, you know, can just imagine the poverty-stricken, working-class white person in middle America who has all these elites on the coast telling them that he has white privilege and his job is under threat of being automated away, then you have someone, Andrew Yang, coming in saying, like, hey, I see you. I see that you're being left by the wayside. I'm going to help you out. We're going to help you, mm -hmm. right? So you can see how it appeals to that demographic of people. Oh, yeah. No, and I think that's a, I think that's a large, I think there's a, that's a very deep sentiment um, that a lot of Americans are feeling, and I do think that it partially gave rise to Trump, for sure. Yeah, um, and that's what I'm saying. It's not. It's not so um, terrible. I'm just. It's just that it. It just. These are. I'm saying these are things that help frame Andrew Yang as more of a conservative presence. Right. He's deeply right. invested in capitalism. He's deeply invested in this old language of yeah, like let's let's lift up everybody by focusing on what. Um, the white working class needs, or I put needs in, in quotes because there's different ideas about what the, even the, what they need, right? Because uh -huh. um, some people say, well, yeah, you guys should run the factories, right? <laughs> That's what you guys need. You guys need co-ops, right? Like one of the emeritus professors at UConn, he's believing in co-ops. So he's like, yeah, like workers should own the things that they're doing, right? And that will make it way easier for the money to get to the community because then we don't even need these you know, some of these figures, right? Yeah, so where does the money come from, according to Andrew Yang's proposal? Does it come from taxing the I think largest, wealthiest companies? Yeah, where I is this money I for... I think it's capital. I think he said capital gains tax. Which, okay. Um, so I think it has to do with raising taxes on, like, business, businesses. Because for him, the idea is that you transfer this massive wealth that's being generated by, like, Amazon, Tesla, and even even old companies like Ford who are also switching to automation, right. um, 
you you end up taxing that wealth and then transition that wealth back to people. Um, I know Bill Gates is even talking about a machine tax. I heard right? that. I Where, heard that. Because basically, like, one, thing, one way we get money is through income tax, right? Mm-hmm. The government gets money through income tax, but machines don't have income. <laughs> so, so there becomes maybe like a, a, a yearly tax that you might pay based on for each machine that you have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of makes up for some of this income tax that's going to be lost by not having people there. Um, and so then there's, there's some UBI proposals that are more based in socialism as opposed to capitalism, right? Yeah, definitely. So what would those look like? Where would the money come? Would that be more of a redistributionist taking money? Not, well, one, not- thing, one thing that makes, one thing that, just remember, one thing that makes socialism and capitalism different is in that who owns the means of production, right? right. Who owns the factories? Who owns the mines? Mm-hmm. Who owns the, 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 for example, the information, Right. For example, and capitalism, the means of production is controlled by, by the free market. Yeah. Well, not even by free market, by like a, a, a small a set of private individuals. Right. Yeah. Um, because you can have markets, but not have the means of production owned by in private individuals. Right. So you could have collectives or groups or or um, or society own the actual factories, own the actual mines. But then have a free market play out. Like you could even oh, you see, could even do it regionally. You could I have see, like see. Texas owns. I mean, you could even do like a state federalist thing where you have like each state owns all the resources, and then they have like markets with each other. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can okay. do. Right. Yeah. So um, I guess to edit it, capitalism would be the means of production is controlled by private individuals participating yeah, in the own, free it's market. It's owned privately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And socialism, oh. the government controls more of the means of production. Communism, the ideal vision was the the people or the working class are in control. Well, yeah, it depends. And I'm painting really broad brushes over. Yeah, these yeah, that's <laughs> why. And this, complex this, ideologies. Yeah, this is why it's apparent. It's important to like parse this out. Yeah. Um, because socialism, the government doesn't necessarily own the means of production. Uh, like I said, you could have it's just publicly owned, mm-hmm. and how public is defined. Is is can be very different, right? So you could have something that's state state owned, but even if it's state owned, is it regional? Is it state level? Is it federal level? Or yeah. do you have things like um, cooperatives where it's worker where it's worker owned, or or city owned, right? There's all kinds of ways in which you could construct ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and communism. Remember, the end goal of communism is actually anarchist utopia. Yeah. So you, know you know what's interesting? We've been talking about machines automating and potentially, like the the potential utopia that we see, which is the result of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. We're creating these machines in a capitalist market, and these machines can displace labor. And the ideal end goal might be we don't have to work. The machines have eliminated human drudgery. Mm-hmm. When you think about that potential future, which might be a future that we want, arguably, mm-hmm. that actually is close to... In my, from my understanding, that is close to Karl Marx's utopian vision, as you said, of an yeah. anarchist utopian society. And I'm not, and I'm, and for the by record, the way, I'm not a communist. I'm not a, I'm not an expert on Marx. I mean, me neither, not at all. Um, maybe a little. Bit. I mean, maybe I'm a communist, maybe I'm not. I don't know where I stand with those things, but I'm definitely not an expert on Marx, um, or Engels, or a lot of other com- who've interpreted beyond and took his thought in different directions. Yeah. What I remember is he said that the ideal is that a man could wake up in the morning and like be a fisher and like at night be a poet. Something about like this question of fully unleashed... Not just unleashed- a cog in the capitalist machine. Yeah, like a fu- fully unleashed human potential. 
Mm-hmm. And the problem with and the problem with capitalism that Marx defined, whether or not this, whether or not you agree to solution, the problem has very bared itself out, right? The problem is that there's a funda- capitalism inserts uh, a fundamental alienation of of people from their labor, right? Right. Um, that leads to all kinds of things such as the p- displacement, migration, um, um, impoverishment. Atomization, as we were yeah, talking atomization. about. atomization. So this alienation. You're just trapped from, in a factory doing the same job over yeah, and over exactly again, that. not it, expressing your true creativity and potential. Yeah, because basically it, tries, it turns a person and makes them into a machine, right? Right. But the problem is that one of the problems with capitalism is that human beings aren't really that valuable except for in the ways they can produce or they can consume, right? Um, okay, so yeah, before you shit on capitalism too much, so I, I understand all of this, and I, I get that. What do you do with the fact that capitalism has risen more people out of poverty than any other system in human history? What do you do with the fact, like, there is a, there is a rise in socialism now in American politics. That's mm-hmm. undeniable. Just look around the Yukon campus. There's all these socialism, um, youth for socialism, whatever. Yeah. Um, what do you do with the fact that Everywhere where socialism has been tried, it seems to have failed, right? So, again, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, so I'm willing to learn and adjust my views accordingly. But from, my, from what I know, capitalism has just given us everything that we hold dear in today's society and lifted so many people out of poverty, and socialism just ends in death everywhere it's been tried. So why... Given those historical facts, why is there this re- new energy for socialism? Has it not been implemented correctly yet? Is that the response there? Oh, I just man. don't. Un- I don't there's, understand. Yeah, there's a there's a lot. So, for example, um, so there's, there's a lot of different things I'm going to say that help frame this discussion. Right. Mm-hmm. One, just because a system is doing well doesn't doesn't prevent moving towards another one, right? Because okay. yeah. the, the example I give is like, how, in the framework of, remember like the um, divine right of kings? Mm-hmm. Like how do the, I'm going to tell you like the, you know, 17, you know, late 1700s, right? How do the colonists of America justify overthrowing the rule of the king, right? When it's the king's charter, it's the king's might and power that even secures the colonies, right? And the king's power comes from God, Right? So how do you just how do you even justify the, the 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 system that helped you build yourself up into what you are that you're gonna move to a different one, right? Like liberal democracy. That I, I don't think you can really convince the king that he should let you guys have the in fact there was a war, right? Mm-hmm. But ideologically there's really I mean, how do you there's really no way you can convince the king, because the king would say, if it wasn't for me, you guys wouldn't have colonies, right? It's my charter, it's my empire, it's my is the previous system that enabled you to have this land, right? right. Um, so for you to then say, no, it's ours, we're taking it, that just seems like a serious affront, right? Um, so, but part of what the, the people did in 1776, they created, they saw a new different, they had a new philosophical perspective in which um, rights exist, and these rights are guaranteed by, are found in nature and are self-evident, right? Not through the church or decree of kings, mm-hmm. and that they pick things like unfair representation and taxation 
you know, taxation without representation, and some people argue maybe the idea that slavery would be ended, and all kinds of things. They picked like a, a list of things and said, this is why you're acting too tyrannical, and therefore we're going to overthrow you, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and they said in the Constitution, said like whenever, whenever the government exists to secure people's rights, and whenever, I think the Declaration of Independence says that, right? And whenever the government isn't doing that, people have a, a, like a basic a duty to overthrow it, or at least a right to overthrow that government. Yeah. And this has created problems in American history, especially for black Americans, because they're like, oh, really? Okay, so we can overthrow the government? No. What? <laughs> you know, I was like, but you're not guaranteeing our rights. Does this include us? <laughs> but you didn't guarantee our rights. So, so, so part of this issue when people are saying that, well, capitalism's done all these things, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, that there might be new values or different values that we, or, or a different worldview that capitalism may not be that compatible with, right? Um, okay, but so then my question would be, um, well, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are certainly improvements that can be made, and why should we go towards a system that has been tried at other points in history and has failed? Well, so here's the thing you have to look That's at. That's what I don't get. Well, here's the thing I look at. For, for a lot of people in America, like for, for like, say, um, uh, black Americans, Native Americans... Um, Mexican Americans, capitalism hasn't really worked that well for us. It just really hasn't, right? And so, um, for some people, it's worked very well. And, and like even the idea of lifting people out of poverty. There's an article I can send you where the the, the poverty line is like, is like, I don't know, like I don't know what it was. It's like, it's like above two ninety a day, or or maybe a, I don't know. I don't remember the exact, but it's a pretty low number. And and this article was saying that like that's not a good, who cares? like if you lift people out of poverty, okay, but what about the next step, right? You <laughs> want people? I mean, that you need the person was saying you need about like seven dollars a day to really have like good nutrition and be able to build yourself and not be like dependent on like you know your your boss and to be able to have and start building an independence. You know, you need a lot more money than just two ninety a day, right? To be to be able to actually flourish, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, they try this and list of people out of poverty, but the question is, can this me- is this mechanism, this machinery, or is this system, the people who run this system, going to actually promote human flourishing? And for, for a lot of people around the world, it's not, there hasn't been a lot of evidence of that, right? It's been like their lives have been made better, but what happens if you just don't want your life to be better? You want to flourish. You want to be able to actualize yourself or have your own your future generations really be able to have a say in the world and maybe influence what goes on around them, then the system doesn't actually look so hot for that because there's been a lot of repeated history of that not uh, being not occurring, right? So a lot of times people want to point to history for socialism, but they don't want to point to history for capitalism and that maybe that um, the way it was applied and the way it's been existing, it just hasn't done that good of a job of allowing a lot of people, especially in like third world countries, it's only recently, that's the thing, it's only recently that really people's um, lives have changed and they haven't necessarily gotten better because another thing, it's also looks at wages, but not like, um, there's, there's some people at UConn who, there's a woman who does interviews with people in Guatemala and the people would say that, not to romanticize like poverty, but they would say that even though they didn't have like a job or wages, food was plentiful. 
right? The waters were really clean, and like you know, there were springs that were just. Right, so know, how are you measuring well-being? Yeah, there is were it just a matter were, of how much money you're making? Or are you taking into account? Other yeah, factors there were springs that now people pay ten dollars for a bottle to have that they would just be able to drink from in some areas, right? Um, there was the avocados and mangoes and squashes would grow all over the place, um, and um, so even though they wouldn't have been making that as much money, they had a lot of other things they could dive in that they could build their sense of self or their communities around. Yeah. And to take that away and then say, oh, but we're going to give you two ninety a day or $3 a day. I mean, on the one hand, while it has risen a person out of poverty, that, that, that statistic and that measure is a little bit, not little, it can be quite unnuanced. Um, Couldn't it still be the, I hear everything you're saying, and I definitely, I see identifiable problems with capitalism. I mean, all you have to do is go to New York City and just see the homeless people on the street, right? Mm-hmm. In some way, those are the excesses of capitalism. Yeah. Those are people that have fallen through, that have fallen, there is no safety net, right? So they, they've fallen through where there should be a safety net and now they're just displaced and we've just become accustomed to um, ignoring these people, right? Like, oh, just ignore them, you know, that they haven't done mm-hmm. that. So that seems wrong, Or right? To me, also, that seems you wrong. You also add into a sane asylums, um, you could add in um, special ed. You can add right. in lots of these things interpreted in ways that people who can't be productive, prisons, right? Yeah. That all these ways of warehousing or, or restraining people um, that that capitalism has used to, and, and certain narratives about people's being lazy under, you know, um, drug addicts, all these things that we're now people are more understanding are social issues or social causes, um, isolation, alienation, um, that capitalists seem very uninterested in solving these issues. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah my point is I think that there should be a safety net. You know, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be people starving on the street in the cold. That's not an ideal ethical world. But couldn't it be that all the system. I forget. There's this famous quote like, "Capitalism is the best of all the worst systems. It's like the least worst, you know, or but, something like yeah, that." Yeah, but it's it's not because there are um, most societies. Like if you research it, most societies in the world, it's relatively recent that people couldn't really get their basic needs met. Now there might be issues with stuff like famine, right? Where there's a sudden crop problem or a failure or or, or like wars and pillaging, like large-scale events. But most people could, because they couldn't, humans wouldn't, you know, if they couldn't, humans wouldn't be surviving very well, right? So there's a lot of systems that have existed that managed to meet people's needs because that's what the concern of the system was. Uh, but we don't really explore what those are. Um, and remember, um, part of the reason America, people think capitalism America, is America, remember, America is not just a country, it's an empire, Right, we we have these different territories over the world that we have control, and we have strong control and influence over over various economies. Right, especially Latin America, you know, it's easy. Like I said, it's easy for capitalism to look successful when you can, when you can shape most of what Latin America does in a way that I mean, we just dug a canal through Panama, <laughs> right? Yeah. Through Panama, so that we could trade, we could th- goods could flow easier, right? So I mean, when you can do that, yeah, capitalism looks pretty easy. When if you need to dig a canal in another country, you can just do that, right? So, but what happens when you actually want to let go of 
those 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 mechanisms those control you have over those various regimes like there's a lot so many you know like all the coups and dictate like we've capitalism has created dictatorships all throughout Latin America and Africa right um, and so a lot of people who have more of an who have an identity or identification with the histories and heritage of those kinds of dictatorships and and uh, kidnappings and killings and just brutal stuff like I mean like Chiquita Banana apparently like was paying for like you know um, militias to like kill people because they didn't want workers to unionize but we throwing the baby out with the bathwater was that capitalism itself that led to those atrocities or was that people misusing capitalism or something to that end uh, it might be but that's why the problem the, the problem continuing turns to the, the biggest proponents of capitalism don't seem very interested in dealing with these things Right. Okay. So, for example, so that's what I'm saying. We get back to the situation. You can always come up with a reason for why you should main conserve the system, right? But the question becomes, like that's why that's why I started with the um, the Revolutionary American War and the introduction of liberalism um, and the ascendancy of of, um, of of capitalism around that time too, because. Most people would un- most people would say that, that was a good thing that that happened, but f- but within that framework of that context, there's all kinds of reasons why you would want to conserve the monarchy, right? If you're if you don't know that the future is going to look like this in 2019, there's all kinds of reasons why you would want to maintain the monarchy. And the monarchy basically did all kinds of great things and basically allowed for the United States to exist and provide the armies for its territory and. The shipment of goods and protection from France and Spain that allowed these colonies to flourish and develop. Why wouldn't you just? Why wouldn't you just stick with? It? And a lot of people did. We're like, yeah, we're like the monarchy makes total sense, right? Um, but there were certain there are certain ideals or norms or values, uh, concepts and economic systems that the the people in the colonies wanted to develop and maintain that were at odds with what the uh, king wanted, right? And so that's, that turned into a war, right? Because they said, hey, we don't like taxation or representation. We don't like the way that you're taxing us without um, allowing us to have a seat at the table, right? Or we want to be autonomous in certain kind of ways with our economic production. We don't want to have to follow certain charters or rules or be part of a larger project that you, the king, have against France. We don't care about that. <laughs> so we're going to revolt, right? So the question becomes... So a lot of revolutions or shift, or even remember, like think about revolution with Thomas Kuhn and, and the yeah, science. and I want to talk about that too in a second. A lot of times when these when these major shifts happen, is because that there are certain values or norms or economic uh, consequences or relations that people want to have, and if the dominant class is not interested in those things, well then they put themselves at odds, right? So capitalism, capitalism uh, could be could be a fine system. But the capitalist class is totally not interested in a lot of people's well-being and totally not interested in, like... What's um, the capitalist class, though? The capitalist class are those who own the, um, the factories, own the means of production. And so those, the top 1%? I, I guess the 1%, maybe more. Because um, so we're not talking about, like, doctors and lawyers, right? These are people who get their checks from <laughs> these other people who have, you know what I'm saying? Like, hospitals don't really... You know, they, they, I mean, they, people pay some money, but people do pay money to, into these healthcare systems. But a lot of it is like it's insurance companies and, and the government and a lot of other larger structures that provide a lot of the wealth that yeah. flows into hospitals to even pay doctors. So I'm talking about the people who run insurance companies, the people who run media companies, the people who run 
um, oil, people who run yep. um, tech companies, right? And this is not to, and I put them in, a, just because the people in our class doesn't mean that they all agree or think in the same. These classes, yeah, like for example, Andrew Yang, to me, is clearly like, he's, and he says that he's clearly what the tech people. Yeah, he comes from that world. Yeah, he's clearly like, the tech people are clearly behind him. Mm-hmm. And that does put him off with other people who, who own um, other industries, right? And I understand the general point you're making. Just human beings have this built-in resistance to change, right? So if there's a monarchy, there are plenty of things that the monarchy's doing well. We don't want to just completely upend the system. That's going to take so much effort. You know, even yeah. just getting rid of slavery. Like, there's, there's, it's going to be hard to, you know, there are going to be so many economic gains that are going to be lost. It's going to be hard. There's this yeah. built-in resistance think to change. About, think about England with, with the slavery thing. England, I think in 2016 or something like just paid off the last payment to slaveholders uh, for when they, yeah, when they freed this, when they freed the, the slaves, right, in England, you know, in, in, uh, in England, in the Caribbean and stuff like that, they basically, and because a lot of slave owners were in the parliament, they're like, you're going to pay us, you're going to basically buy them out. And it was like the equivalent of like 40% of the country's GDP. <laughs> right. And they just paid that off, like, in 2016. Okay, so my question... My question is, it's right. So it's easy to neglect the bad things that are ubiquitous in the society because of this built-in resistance to change, and you're only focusing on the good things. And you can make the same case with today with modern America, like people actually are, right? Like, look, we need to change. We're not denying that good things have resulted from capitalism, but we think we have better ways to organize things moving forward into the future. Yeah. I guess my basic question is, are things as bad as some people are making it out to be in America? I know that's a really big question, right? Yeah. But it seems like, I don't know. Like, look, I understand that racism is still a thing and all mm-hmm. of that, but can't we, the fact that we had an African-American president, that seems to be a durable game and uh, mm-hmm. civil rights and all of that. And um, what was the other point I was going to make? Um, there just There seems to be a tendency to... Not rewrite American history, but only look at the bad parts of American history to the neglect of the good parts. Kind of the opposite, right? As not, instead of looking at the good to the neglect of the bad, it seems like a lot of people are just look, focusing on the bad and saying that's what America is. America's racist all the way through and through. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we need to discard everything that America was built upon, including the Enlightenment values, including capitalism, because that's America to the core. And I'm sitting there saying, well, oh, I understand how horrible a lot of aspects of the history of this country have been, but I feel like there's a danger again of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and there's a failure to recognize all of the growth and prosperity that has transpired in this country since the end of World War II. And there you have a lot of young people saying, oh, we need to change things without kind of looking back towards history and learning some lessons from history. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know I'm just kind of throwing no, a lot no, out this is this is good. This is good stuff. That's kind of how I'm feeling about it a little bit. Yeah. No, that's totally, that's totally understandable. So what I would say is, and this is why, and I have a friend, Dan, who I talk to about similar things. So when you, that, that narrative you said about like enlightenment values, uh, there's, America's been racist through and through, that we have to throw out everything, including enlightenment values. Right, yeah. Who says that? Well, um, just just the talk of completely upending the system and implementing socialism. And Why isn't that a fulfillment of enlightened values? That all people are created equal and have rights that have to be guaranteed and protected. Remember, that's what I remember. Our, our Declaration of Independence says that 
if the government is not securing your rights, you have a you have a right to overthrow it, right? That's that's a structure they put. They basically say this is why we can overthrow the king because the king isn't protecting our rights, right? And so if that's in our Declaration of Independence, why wouldn't overthrowing the government because it's not it's severely not it's really not protecting people's rights? Um, so whose rights by, are being trampled upon? I guess that's my question. I mean, definitely African Americans, right? I mean, I mean a judge just went to a judge just got sentenced for basically selling black kids to prison <laughs> and that he wasn't the only person that did that um what? um yeah what? <laughs> yeah basically he would like give cards give black kids harsher sentences so that he could um and he would get like profit from like various prisons or other people right um you have the the legacy of things like Jim Crow, segregation and and slavery that still haven't been that still don't allow people to Actualize their rights. You have the voter, the mm-hmm. Voting Rights Act, which got repealed. You still have. I mean, we can talk about reparations here a little bit, because you said you're. Yeah, we we can talk about that. But um, you have the very strong education disparities, right? Of of uh, de facto <clears throat> segregation, and even de jure segregation was just changed in the fifties, right? Um, you have the okay, tre- so, you have the sorry. treaties that were broken with a lot of Native American communities, um, or were drafted by coercion. Um, so you have a lot of ways in which the rights of people are being violated or not being allowed to actualize, right? And if and for, for a lot of black people, basically the American government has acted very tyrannical. Because one, it brought it brought black people here and has treated and treated black people the way they have the past couple of centuries, right? That sounds like a tyrannical government that kidnaps you and then treats you like shit <laughs> for centuries. Uh, that sounds like a tyrannical. Like, I don't know how you could. Maybe there's a way it's not tyrannical, but that sounds pretty tyrannical. And so uh, it seems like then that there is, if if the if the founding fathers rebelled because of stuff like taxation without representation, it seems like there's there's a, a, a justified claim in our own legal our own philosophical framework for for black people or at least native people to be like yeah let's let's change the government. Yeah. Well, so one thing I just want to flag, a lot, the public school funding issue that you raised. A lot of mm-hmm. my conservative friends w- will say, what's institutional racism? Like, give me an example. I don't see, it seems like everyone has the same rights now and again. Yeah. And public school funding, to my understanding, is one example of yeah. what you might call institutional racism. Because so you have these public schools being funded by local property taxes. And then you have African Americans living in pl- more poverty-stricken places. The reasons for that dating back to Jim Crow... Yeah. and white flight and all of that. So now you have black people that are in poorer areas compared to white people uh, by and large. So if public school funding is going to be funded by property taxes, there are going to be less property taxes there. Again, that predicament stems from Jim Crow. And then that's going to lead to poorer education, which is going to lead to a generation of African Americans that have a lower quality of education, which puts them at a disadvantage. Yeah, or right? stuff, yeah and like redlining, right, where it was like legal policy like like literally legal by the government to not loan give loans or housing um to black people um the the whole wells fargo's crisis right where they were like giving out bad loans to black people and they you know remember they they were called them mud people mud people loans like yeah you can look it up like they were like that's what they were talking about giving these bad uh subprime mortgages a lot of them were given to black and latino people um and now the the bus happened. They haven't gotten anything in in return. Um, you also would have um, 
you also have I mean, you you also have like for the, I I was on a train of thought by loss, but you also have like for example, the UN just came here, like the UN agent on like poverty, mm-hmm. right? He came to America and wrote a report. That that alone should be embarrassing, right? That that poverty was so bad that this person came from the UN to investigate and wrote a report. That was basically like, and especially in the American South, for a lot of black people, white people too, um, especially for but for black people. The poverty is terrible. The poverty is like equivalent to like a lot of these people. They live in like third world country conditions, right? There are people who live like, and, and I say third world with quotes around it, right? Um, but they live, they live, they live deeply. They, they live deeply impoverished, and I don't say third world conditions as like a uh, as a derogatory term, but that they that they live in. I say that in terms of response to these conservatives who see America as uplifting people out of poverty or better than a lot of all of these countries there are people in, in america that live in those same same conditions like they're like they were they were interviewing with some black people in like alabama who live by like an open live near open sewage right like a big vat of just sewage right and they just live there and the government the alabama government doesn't really care about doing anything about that right and the white community even the poor white community don't live by the sewage right because what you talked about like this say so the question becomes, that's what the question becomes, okay, well, that person sounds like their rights are being violated, right? Yeah. Um, well, if, so you li- if you live near sewage, it seems like there's a lot of, like, certainly life, <laughs> but probably pursuit of happiness as well as not being secured. And if you ask the government, hey, change this, and they're like, no, we don't care about that. It's your problem, right? And the government's goal, and the government's, like, in the declaration, so the government, the, the government gets its sovereignty from its... It's it's a ability to protect citizens' rights. If it's not doing that, then then it seems like those people have a right to say that this government is illegitimate to me. And right? this is still going on to this day because I guess that's yeah. This was like question. this was like this was like I don't know a couple years ago. The, the report remember the report was the report was um, this year and Trump was like oh I think Trump or his one of his sec, one of his counsels like Trump's a whole other combo. We one, one of his one of his um, one of his. Uh, cabinet people was like oh this is like a travesty the UN's just like attacking us like the idea that America this is what she said the idea that America can't provide for its citizens is like just BS like this UN report is just like it's just like basically there's being like haters like this was like okay like last year or a couple you know like so my question is haven't have we not made a lot of progress since since Jim Crow and what's the best way to move forward right there so there still are these racial injustices that transpire in America is the best way, it, doesn't, it seems to me that the best way isn't to overthrow the government like they did in 1776, but just to continue to move forward and make progress like we have done the past 40 years or so. And the whole thing, the whole, frankly, I just don't understand the whole issue of reparations. I mean, who, there just seems to be so many complications with it. And I know ta Coates wrote that famous Atlantic article where he makes the case for reparations, but um, what what do you do with people that are half black and half white? What do you do with poor white people who can't really afford it? What do you do with white people whose ancestors weren't slaveholders? What do you do with black people whose ancestors weren't slaves in this, America? This is, this is... You know, you see what I'm saying? Like, how, yeah, how does this get... But that's like... How that's, do we pay for it and who pays for it? Yeah, that's like... But to me, like... But you see that that's so, like... I can't find the right word for it, but it's so like those are such like small concerns in light of like How? no no in light of the fact that in light of the fact that 
based on our own political philosophy, these people seem to have a right to overthrow the government, right? And but you're saying that they should just be patient, right, and not try to change the system, not do these big gestures, yet trying to petition the government to help them no, change it, but don't overthrow the system. I know, but reparations isn't overthrowing the system. Reparations is just asking for the. For the, for the government to restore and do its job of making sure that various groups of people can have their rights and have their life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? But um, how does it work? How would it? I don't understand no, no. how it would work. So, but I'm only but I'm only saying that the question of how it works that's something that we figure out. But how it works doesn't mean that it's not like justified. A lot of people have this angle like it's not even justified. It's like crazy, but because it'll be it's hard to think about how it would work. But how it works, that's just a political matter, right? I mean... Well, if it's not practically feasible, there's no use in talking about it. We should think about other remedies that oh, are well, practically well, feasible to try to help these people and alleviate the injustices well, that still occur. It's definitely, it's definitely practically feasible. I mean, all you do is just... Um, like I said, we, you could just cut from something like the military budget. You could cut from... This is what Marianne Williamson talks about, right? Um, you could, like we said, we just did this. Two I didn't tr- watch that video. Oh, we just did this. Like 10 minutes, but. Oh, we just did this like two trillion dollar tax cut that's putting us in debt, right? And no one cares about that. Um, so we could go in debt. Obviously, people don't care about going in debt, right? If it's helping people who are gonna, who don't even care about the United States that much. But if it comes to helping people who live here every day and would invest and contribute to America, oh my God, we can't go in debt for them, but we can go in debt for, for you know, like you know people who control bank capital, right? Yeah, let's go in debt for them because I don't know, like, you know. So um, so one is we could just go in debt for these things because we've already, we've already done massive projects that bring us into debt, like this tax cut. Um, two, we could cut from various things like the military. Um, I mean, that's a big one, but probably some other things. We could, we could raise taxes on the wealthy. We can do all kinds of things to generate that wealth. Um, two, um, reparations, is, is there's no way to actually repay the debt, but can, can complete, completely and fully, right? Like these are people who worked for, these are people who worked for centuries for free and then had their hands tied afterwards. So, but one of the issues, one of the problems is that- But also another thing that well, yeah, is- Yeah, let me, yeah, let me okay, finish sorry. that. Keep going. One of the problems is that if you, because part, part of what liberalism it's, it's foundations that people's labor into the ground gives them ownership. The work you do, you own the stuff of your own labor, mm-hmm. right? So if you, if you say that for you to not try to recognize anything or repair, like reparate with black people or black workers in any kind of way, um, it means that, and this is, but I'm saying this is before we get into the, the, some of the more about who, because that's, that's just easy, you just, you just sort that out, right? But if you don't pay it, basically what you're saying is that actually labor doesn't really matter. Right, and so therefore, every what then the question becomes: Why shouldn't we just then invalidate property ownership or patent ownerships that were from the 1800s or 1750 or 1850? Right, um, because obviously the work you do doesn't really matter. What matters is is if we if is the comfort or structure that we have now. Right, it's a totally anti-past orientation. So the question becomes: Why then? What grounding do you have for not invalidating or taking away property that people got because they said black people can go to Oklahoma or things like that, right? I mean, if you try to go to the law, well, then you deal with this question of, well, yeah, it's legal, okay, well, black people were in this 
outside legal category. So either you have to accept that, either you have to accept that the, the dehumanization and exploitation of black people is core to American society and people just don't care. We're not gonna try to reverse or, 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 or acknowledge the um, consequences of that. And it's just that the property we got and the lands and the patents, because a lot of these things were stolen patents from slaves and all kinds of stuff, like these patents that were stolen, we don't care. We don't care right? The people that got the wealth from that, they get to keep it just because. Um, if you don't try to do anything, then labor doesn't seem like it really matters. It, what matters is the will of the majority, right? Over what property belongs to who or who gets to keep their wealth. And if that's the case, then why not just change it now? Then, right? If more people want to take land or take property or take patents away from people and give it to somebody else, why not just do this? That's the legal precedent, is that you can take patents from people and if we haven't if we haven't done work to undo that in a serious way, then it seems like the only real justification is just that we don't want to do it. But that's but then that's a matter of political will, not of real philosophy or um, or, or or economics. It's just a matter of who has the power, who has the strength, right? Um, I, yeah, I want to move. Um, I don't want to rush this, but I do want to move on to a couple other things before our time runs out. Um, yeah, well, I think we can just talk, and you can just cut it. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. But no, but um, I only have it till two, and I just don't oh. want other people to come in. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, with the reparations thing, though, I, I don't really don't know much about it, and I feel I want to watch the video that you sent me on it. Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't take it that. So I'm doing in the, you know a little bit of philosophical. She's doing in a moral kind of argument. But mm -hmm. in terms of who do you pay? Um, so one, the thing about white Americans, white working class Americans, that is. Um, that doesn't really have anything to do with reparations. Like, if, if working white class people feel that they've been slighted by the government and they deserve repayment, they should ask for it, and it should be given. <laughs> I mean, that's I mean that's what the basic so it's not income. Necessarily a, it's be, not necessarily a racial thing. I mean, I mean, but by and large, will be. Yeah, reparations, reparations are, but it's not like a. But you see how self-centered that is. That you're not thinking like, oh, that these people are not thinking, oh, like that's a good idea. We should do that too. Let's support them. Maybe they'll support us. And when we ask for it, it immediately turns into, you see how the the racial tension prevents people from even allying with each other and seeing like I feel like poor white people should be like, damn, that's a good idea. Yeah, like they've totally like we totally been gypped. Like the federal government. Well, I didn't know that was a part of the plan. I thought it was just I was assuming that when we're talking about reparations for slavery, we're only talking about giving money to African Americans. We are, but that doesn't mean that white people can't also. Make a claim. This is a these are separate policies. Right. The fact that we give money to that we give reparations to black people for slavery because we want to, we want to secure the philosophical and legal and economic foundation of our country. Um, these aren't these aren't necessarily moral arguments. That's a totally different thing than should we give money back to poor whites who've also been uh, who've also suffered and be and been tricked and jibbed by the government. I think they should also make a claim, right? <clears throat> and I'm sure if white people supported black people in making reparations claims, black people support white people, poor white people making claims to the government that they should get, you know. But they've also got the thing is they've also gotten support structures. They've also gotten it support as well, right? Um, so for example, the GI Bill, right? Most black people were not allowed to participate in that, right? And they found all kinds of ways to do. Like for example, whatever job you did while you were in the military was the kind of like career you could point to. Right, you have to be related tangentially. So, like, if you were a medic, you could become a doctor. If you were like a radio person, you could become like an engineer or 
or go into communications or whatever. But a lot of black people were like janitors, mess hall, you know, like people. Right. So they were blocked from actually getting a lot of the wealth benefits of the GI Bill, which was a which was a time when the America invested into people. There's a great book called When Affirmative Action Was White, which really goes into like the, the level, the amount of policies and the monetary investment that went into poor white people to build this middle class structure and create a foundation for them. Doesn't mean they shouldn't ask for more. But they can't act like they didn't get like that's what I'm saying. They can't act like they also didn't get a lot of invest. Like the poor white people and a lot of middle class people can't act like they also did not get a large investment of cash flow and universities and resources that were built to help uplift them. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying. Is like why is it that sense that what worked for all this stuff was done for for a lot of these populations, but then when black people are like yeah we want that too, we're like no like it's crazy like how do you you know it's like well I mean. Reparations is not the only way to go about doing this. You're right. But I do want to get around this idea that it's like crazy or it's... I was on just on Reddit and someone's like, it's extreme. Reparations is extreme. Like, reparations is not extreme. Um, reparations actually... Um, there are people on the left who don't like reparations precisely because it divides class groups, right? And that we yeah. need, and that we should go for... But, I mean, these people are like, yeah, we just need to change the means production owners, right? And everybody's life will get better. Um, so, yeah, I want to... If we can, I want to briefly talk about the replication crisis and science yeah. and fake news. Um, yeah, I want to I want to learn more about the reparations thing and put that conversation on hold because I don't yeah. want to seem to the listeners like I'm dodging this issue. It's no, literally it's just not. because of time constraints. Yeah, no, and this is and there's a lot can, I want to talk to you about. Yeah, we can talk. We can talk. And this is just a starter. There are like so many books, so many articles that you can read on this. My my old goal was not even to come, but just to actually frame it right. Because mm-hmm. that's one of the problems that so many of these debates are not really framed right. And I don't think it's and crazy. People, I just Thinking about it on my own terms have trouble making sense of how it would be implemented in a practical sense. Yeah, and, and a lot. And a, and but I haven't is, read anything about yeah, it. But the thing is, a lot of policies are not have, that have been implemented haven't been like like haven't been like perfect from the get go. Mm-hmm. They've been tweaked and improved over time, right? Think about the Affordable Care Act when it first went into play. It was kind of a mess. Right, it's gotten better. Um, so the fact that a policy might have difficulties surrounding it doesn't mean it shouldn't be implemented, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you just you might start off with one level and then you realize there are more issues and then you amend the policy. But anyway, so, replication. So the replication crisis. We're taking a philosophy of science seminar together right now. So there's this replication crisis in science. I think mostly psychology and psychiatry or something. Yeah, but, um, can, a lot of social science. So a bunch of uh, pretty famous scientific published experiments have been replicated recently and they've failed to replicate, right? So it's led to this crisis in science. What's causing, what's causing this, right? And as we were talking about yesterday, I think it's fascinating because I see this stark parallel between the replication crisis in science and this fake news crisis in Absolutely. journalism where you have this faulty science, not faulty, but <coughs> science, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> science that everybody accepts and then experiments are run based upon that but if that initial experiment was wrong or there were problems with it now you have <clears throat> these problems being magnified because you have future scientific experiments that are run based upon that and similarly in the journalism sphere right you'll have fake news articles that are put out and that are circulated on Facebook and then you have legitimate news organizations that are writing articles based upon that fake news and then it just becomes magnified Yes. Right, and suddenly people don't know what's true and what's not true. Yes. And this replication crisis is especially 
um, important in this moment in history because there is just this increasing lack of trust in our experts and in yes. our in, and in our expert institutions yes. right you just see this in climate science climate change deniers right yes. so the fact that there is this replication crisis just to some people might lend some credence to that belief you know like mm -hmm. oh look we shouldn't have been trusting them all along mm -hmm. right so all the all this is connected um in fascinating ways to me um and yeah so i guess what you what <laughs> I don't even know what the question is there. And another thing that I want to briefly talk about here, which is relevant, is like just echo chambers and epistemic bubbles. Just how people are just getting their their news via these algorithmic filtering methods, where the algorithm figures out what they like, what their political ideology is, then it just feeds that back to them. And so now they're only seeing news that agrees with their ideology, and they suddenly think that their ideology represents the way that the world actually is, mm -hmm. because that's all they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So now. That's sh really straining the public national discourse to my mind because we're not even there's not even an agreement on what the basic set of facts are yes. anymore. And this is just flip them to Fox and CNN. It's two completely different universes. Yeah, and this is where I remember earlier we were talking about various postmodern arguments, and yeah. this reality we're at now is something that was is actually the kinds of things that a lot of these philosophers and theorists and all kinds of scholars and people were, were foreshadowing, right? Yeah. That, do you see what I'm saying? That knowledge yeah, yeah. is actually tied to authority and power, right? Knowledge is not like this um, this thing that comes from the world or comes from revealing the world. It's tied to power and institutions, right? And now that the power structures are, are a lot more, well, there's, there's two different categories to these power structures. One, that they're more divided in some ways, right? That there are various like organizations that have various different agendas, mm -hmm. you know, paying to produce media and studies that are counter, like the, for example, the American um, phys um, Psychiatric Association and like, I don't know, the pharmaceutical industry might now be at odds, whereas in, like, maybe 1950, they're probably very much in line. Yeah. Um, and so the studies and all this stuff is, there's a shift in that. But two, it has, the it has to do with the introduction of the profit model and the consumer model into media yeah. and um, knowledge production. I mean, media, that's in, media, media and, and universities are both sites of knowledge production. Right? There are other ones, too, but those are two big ones. A lot of times people think of a media as a site of knowledge production, but as a site of, like, revealing the world right that's like an older model of, of journalism and now most people i mean journalists a lot earlier realize yeah we're crafting stories like even from the very beginning i'm sure they realized that right because they're used to like cameras used to be controlled more you only you know have cameras are pretty expensive and only like you might have one and you could set up shots and really control the image right um so with the consumer model Media uh, and information, as media as a vehicle for information, become tied to attention and advertising. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of these plat social these platforms, right? Facebook is in that. Facebook is just another media platform, just like television, right? Just like movies, right? It's mm -hmm. not. It's just it's another platform. Um, and now the in these platforms, Facebook is a platform that's primarily about the giving people ads, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not really about people connecting that's just what people do on there 
but the revenue, the wealth is generated by advertisements, which means that the revenue is generated by these other groups, these other interests paying Facebook. Yeah, they're making money off you. Yeah, and so, but not even that, the money is generated from these other companies, right? Facebook's not right. Facebook's not like generating its own. Yeah, it's from the ads. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not generating its own. Like it's not like it's like it's not like Facebook's like has a mine of you know, the income is being generated from people's information, mm -hmm. um, and the information is something that that other companies want so they can sell products to people, mm -hmm. and so that means that Facebook creates these algorithms. But the goal of these algorithms is to is to, I don't know what the language is, but in a lot of like marketing analysis, you want to find. Um, um, I don't know if they would call it, but you want to find like various lifestyles, right? And various lifestyles are likely to buy more products, different products. So well, you you probably fit in a certain lifestyle type. I fit into a lifestyle type, and there's some that we overlap on, right? Yeah. And the goal is that if they can figure out what you're, the more they can figure out about your lifestyle type, the more they can target ads at you, and the more likely you are to buy something, right? right? And I guess Facebook right. has provided these algorithms that these people trust that say that if you if someone sees an ad, they are X times more likely to buy the product than they don't see it. So pay us, right? So, but that means that the out the goal of the algorithm is to present is to is to a keep you coming, and that's where the bubble information bubble comes in that you get the info that you get, and two, <clears throat> and two to um to to, to, to determine where to determine what you desire most and what you want and who you're associated with mm -hmm. so they can better target you with ads yeah um, so that's a I think the profit motive and the consumer model of information consumption which is um, people were talking about like media studies in the 70s and stuff too um, is a big thing that's causing this bubble to happen um, but is it but there are some other things and this is where we get into the issue of like how you know how how um, how we should back to the question of like how we should deal with the capital, capitalism and and its motive where it can it's like we don't it's it, people continually when this once they are entering that class they're continuing like well we don't care about you know you. and <laughs> yeah just to pick up that thread right so you're you're explaining how just the the profit model yeah, the on profit all these platforms the that's le model. that's led to the creation of all these epistemic bubbles that also leads to the creation that also leads to the fact that most of the news that we focus on is sensationalist and exactly. negative yeah, in so, nature because so that's Facebook. what gets profit that's what gets clicks people want to see Facebook, the horrifying stuff but i remember i saw good night good luck about i think it's walter cronkite and and this this golden era of journalism when they and I when I remember I learned this I was surprised like these these companies like CBS they would take a cut they would take a, a hit on the news because they believed it was a service right yeah. so you get profit from your all the other channels but for the news it, you can take a loss because the news provides a service of giving people the info mm -hmm. but now that's completely changed where the major news sources are not. Uh, are also supposed to generate a profit. Yeah. Otherwise, you get fired, you lose your job, and stuff like that. So, um, so these people have this push to push certain stories, to put certain headlines, to push certain things, right? So that's 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 one part of it. Another part is two yes. other parts, and then well, another part is that we have a literacy we have a literacy crisis, right? In which there's baseline literacy, which is like, can you read? But then there's like critical literacy, right? Which where can you like, can you read, compare, can you research, 
can you um, um, can you um, can you like you know how much do you um, how ref- how do you reflect on who's saying what right? Mm-hmm. I remember there was an article differentiate between credible sources and incredible sources. Well, not even that because that that goes back to authority, which is another issue that we that's related to this. But yeah. no, I remember I think it was the Reader, which is a Chicago newspaper or some some newspaper. I don't remember. But basically, they said it was like it was like National Reading Literacy Day or something. They said people don't read enough. And then in the article it says, if you read this, don't leave any comments, right? And you go in the comments, <laughs> all these people saying, yeah, people don't read anymore. Like people don't read. Like it's a tragedy. Like all these things. Where like mm-hmm. a lot of times what people do is they leap from the he- they leap from the headline. So it means that there's and so there's a sense of like you're not actually going to articles. Michael Lynch was talking about that the last week in his brown bag, how there's research that shows that most people that share articles on Facebook, they spend like nanoseconds actually on the article, exactly. which means that they're not actually reading it. Exactly. They're just seeing the title, and then they're yeah, so sharing it based upon the title. title. So, so you're saying is that, and these things loop together, so there's a sense in which people aren't being encouraged or given the time to actually really read things. And mm-hmm. if you really read stuff, that in itself is going to do a lot to cut down on a lot of stuff because then, it, first of all, it takes more time. And there's this whole war in our attention that we were talking about earlier exactly. that's being waged on all fronts of the digital, the digital landscape, which means that we don't have patience for anything. Exactly. So you have this attention-starved subject, right, that becomes a, a consumer, right? That is, the, that is one of the, in terms of the middle-class consumer, that is their, the ideal mentality for them is to be relatively unfulfilled, and attention seeking or attention shifting so they're continually buying and consuming different things yeah <coughs> and the good thing about um the meat for these from the, on the half of these media people is you actually don't need a lot of money to participate in this mindset nowadays because you can consume media right and you can get yeah. ads and that might make you buy something else so so there's like there's this question of like real literacy and reading that's not really um and so in which people are not, and it, and it has to do with also social media is a different thing where a lot of times people are sharing headlines not to read information, but to like get reactions or com- connect with people, right? And that's a whole different um, yes. purpose. So these are things that are layered on top of each other. Michael Lynch was talking about that too. He was saying that a lot of times people aren't sharing to transmit knowledge, but they're doing it to, yeah, connect with people or to indicate to the broader community that this is their moral beliefs yeah. you know it's almost saying more about them than them trying to yeah. or impart knowledge or, or, about who they're, or about who they're with and it's, it becomes a conversation topic where it says and so you already have beliefs you already have ideas you already have a worldview, and the headline just fits that and you sh- and you just pass it on and share it but the deeper process of reading and construction isn't really done another branch of this so we said two so far right the profit the profit motive consumer model we have this kind of crisis around like literacy and reading mm-hmm. um because that's not really valued in our society mm-hmm. and not cultivated in people but a third thing that we have is <clears throat> the authority crisis yes right in yep. which people don't trust universities people don't trust various media sources people don't trust um government and so part of before 
you kind of have to because like who else are you gonna you know who else are you gonna turn to besides That's cbs the thing. we're limited DC. we can't right. go i can't go out and run all of the experiments myself we inevitably have to trust upon experts yeah in different domains of knowledge exactly but there actually are a lot more alternatives now than there were you know even 15 years ago right um where you have like Alex Jones, you have like, and you have people who, yes, and, but you have people who, who, who make fake news because, and these people don't even work for industries. And this is back to the profit motive. There's a NPR did a, uh, a, a set, a, um, a session on some people where they interviewed them who people who make fake news. And the guy was like, yeah, like basically I just make fake articles and these companies the, the advertising firms, what they do is they create portfolios for companies that give them a certain amount of views or clicks, right? And these and these marketing agencies, they don't really, they didn't really care. They don't really care about the content of the article. They only care about does it like if this article is like if this if this website gets like <clears throat> x many clicks and views per day or per month. Like we're and because we're trying to build a pack like a package like okay McDonald's what do you, what package do you want do you want the million million views per day package with the ten million views per day package and here's how much it costs here are the websites that are a part of, they don't necessarily I've tell you what this. the website and this is where Breitbart got like in trouble like Click Farms or something yeah this is where Breitbart got in trouble right because they lost a ton of sponsors that they had because they didn't <laughs> I think it was I think one was like Kmart or something I don't know it was like big companies had these this right-wing newspaper because they didn't look at it they just knew the they were just told that this site gets you gets x many views and it's growing in popularity and it's a part of this package that can get you this many views so um the, the reason why i links the reason i'm putting that in authority and not just the profit model is that that gives certain kinds of um websites financial legitimacy and status they might otherwise not have yes right? so all you have to do so if you're now people, are, I think people are now, they're trying to go back and, like, you know, look at this stuff more. But, I mean, there was a time when it, as long as you could get X amount of views, you were going to get money. Mm-hmm. Someone reach out to you and be like, yo, your site is this amount of ads. Like, we're going to put you in this thing that, and then you're going to start getting Kmart and Target ads. Yeah. Another thing on the authority issue. So I recently read this paper and it made this distinction between echo chambers and epistemic bubbles. An epistemic bubble is something along the lines that we were talking about earlier. I'm only getting news that aligns with my ideological perspective, Mm -hmm. right? And if I were to be presented with the other perspective, the other ideological perspective, I would be open to it, right? It's just that I'm not seeing that. Yeah. An echo chamber is when that other perspective, that other authority has been actively discredited by the news sources that you're currently getting right so if i'm listening to someone and they're saying yeah all these other so-called expert institutions they're actually fake news so they're gonna they're gonna tell you this but that but that is just a reflection of the fact that they're fake news and then you go to those other sources and they they tell you exactly what the sources that you've been consulting are gonna say they're gonna tell you and that just that functions to confirm the actively discrediting narrative that you've gotten right so you have whatever news sources that you're getting actively discrediting other expert institutions Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. you're unable to see them as just a different point of view and you're seeing them as fake news as not an authority when they might actually be an authority and these echo chambers are so much more pernicious because it's less obvious that there's an escape route 
right? With an epistemic bubble, just expose yourself to more perspectives. But yes. here, exposing yourself to those perspectives actually just confirms that narrative. Yeah, and this is why we get into these questions of um, how much do we are actually going? Do we want to invest in um, a making sure certain kinds of um, institutions have that kind of authority? Again, that's one option. You have to go that way. But two, and two to actually get people to um, connect with one another face-to-face ways, right? That might get them out of the echo chamber. So one thing I was thinking is that, for example, every every society has institutions, right? Institutions that ensure that the that the 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 forms of meaning and the way of life that's supposed to be existing is replicated and s- sustained. Now, if, if you look at America, we don't really have really any strong democratic institutions anymore, right? Um, the school is not that because the school operates by it could be that though, but right now it's not. It operates by a more it, it tends to operate by a more authoritative model, right? Here's the knowledge you re, you 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 know you read it. It's it's this agent of meritocracy, right? Um, and parents aren't really. Parents are invited in some places, but they're not like most schools in America. They're not like deeply interwoven into the process of learning or other things like that. So um, churches used to function as some of those lifeblood structures where people would meet and get a message and get information and talk. And but now, yeah, ties seems, back in what we we're talking about—the atomization—and you're not yeah. interacting with other people in yeah, real life, or you're, or you're interacting with people, but you're interacting with people that are already often within your community structure, right? And so that really can reinforce what you would call an echo chamber. Yeah. But what about like, um, what about something like a real civic center, right? Where it's it's built and it's funded, and it exists for the purpose of <clears throat> allowing people to meet each other, right? Um, allowing people to talk. They do outreach to communities. Um, because we really, really value it. We even provide maybe some transportation for certain things or even stipends, right? Because we actually care about people meeting each other and talking and sharing ideas. Yeah. Because you can't just build a building, right? It depends on where you build it, right? You might, unless you're going to build multiple ones, right? In, right. In, in, in areas. And I feel like that it is important that meeting other people with different views in person as opposed to just meeting people with other different views online. I feel like that's important because... You don't have to engage with another person's common humanity online. It's like road rage. Exactly. You know? It is. Yeah. It's like it's like a So there has to be that physical element that's somehow incorporated. Now let's say that this is a good idea. This goes back to our beginning, right? Yeah, it does. You say, hey, let's do this. This is probably gonna solve a lot of these problems. And then Facebook, Amazon and and the oil company is like, no, fuck that. What do you (laughs) what do you do? What do you do then, right? You say, Well, then we're gonna tax you so we can have that, because we value that. Right? And if you don't, and if you really are that against it, and our democracy is going to fall apart if we don't have that, we might have to re- we have to at least have a stern talking about how power relations are going to function in this in this country, right? Um, and if you yeah. want to leave, leave, but you ain't taking the factories with you. You ain't taking the patents with you. Okay, right? we so we build these civic centers. How do you incentivize people to actually go to this? You know, because again, we're living in a day and age where. Yeah, you can just have everything delivered to your door. What's the incentive there? That's what I was saying. We could provide, um, like, we could provide transportation. We could provide stipends, right? That's one thing. It's taken me a long time to get this off the ground, so I'm still not, it's still not up and running yet. But this is part of my idea is that 
um, in Willimantic, I'm trying to start a dialogue group with the parents of children in the Willimantic schools for a lot of reasons that I don't necessarily want to get into um, because we're, I don't wanna, we're gonna run out of time, but we can talk about it more another time. Yeah. But part of it is to get them to reflect on their own education experience, see themselves as active learners in the world, right? Not Because you're also taught to be a passive consumer of knowledge, not like someone who's actively seeking on how to transform their environment with knowledge. You're taught to be passively receive it and then maybe act on it, but hopefully not, right? Because that's where a lot of, they don't want people to actually change their environment. They want to use them. And so, um, but we're also gonna give them stipends, right? Um, I'm working with the, I'm trying to work with the Working Families Party um, nonprofit organization, right? And this is through the um, Humanities Institute and the Public Discourse Project, not no, the Project for Intellectual Humility and Conviction. Right. And um, I got funding from them. And so, but like if you give people, and the stipend we're figuring is maybe $15 an hour, and maybe you set up some way to have some childcare, you give people $15 an hour, they'll come. Or you provide transportation. There's all kinds of things that you can do to make sure that people show up if you really want it to happen, right? Because as you said, if you just build the building, people, a lot of times people won't come, mm-hmm. right? Um, or you build the building where the, the peop- where people are, but it's hard if, if you're trying to get different people from different angles to meet. Yeah. But imagine if you said, hey, you know what? Two hour, two hour dialogue, it's $15 an hour. Um, we're gonna have food. For everybody that's involved, and it might be relatively small, I don't know, the size. But you could get a decent amount of people coming, right? Yeah. I feel like that that has to be the answer. Cognitive shifts, to my mind, are often <coughs> are often instigated by emotional shifts in people. And emotional shifts are instigated by actually interacting with people that are different from you, that you have vilified online, or that you've, you know, you've formed this negative or, conception of, and you realize that they're just humans that have different experiences. I just, I feel like people, one overarching theme here is I feel like people grossly overestimate the amount of human evil in the world. That, you know, they'll automatically assume, oh, people who have different political views than I do have to be evil. There's something, you know, there's something wrong with them. Um, that, in my experience, People are overestimating that. In my experience, a lot of people are decent, and they just have a warped conception of reality or a different conception of reality, yeah, or, or just bad ideas. Well, right? the They're problem, not bad people. Yeah, the problem with that, the problem with that view is, I think it's it's right in some extents, but in terms of the question of evil, right? Look, you, sh- you know, we should look at Hannah Arendt's the banality of evil, right? The Holocaust was basically done by a lot of people. Like, I'm just following orders. These are people who are just, you know, average people that had wives and kids and 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 volunteered at their church and did all kinds of things but when it came time to absolutely you know, push the person in the chamber they did it or they didn't know right exactly what was going on but they also didn't think too much of it or they you know there's it that was the shocking thing for a rent was the way that a lot of these people who did these great evils were just like well that's exactly my people that's yeah they're other they're otherwise psychologically normal people that just have a completely pernicious well, they may not they may not be psychologically what was the word you use? Nor- normal, psychologically normal people. Yeah, they may not be psychologically normal, but well, so, they may not be bad people. <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe they're not because of the way that their ideology has influenced them. But my yeah. point is that you know, 
if I was born as a German during that time period, swept up in the ideological frenzy, would I have risen above it and seen all the evils? I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. Yeah. I, but the, my, that's my point. That's exactly my point. They're, they're otherwise normal, in quotation marks, people that have fallen under the sway of completely dangerous beliefs and ideology. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought yeah. we could per- perhaps end by cycling back to the replication crisis. And yeah. Because in a lot of ways, um, it ties into the work that you're doing on your PhD dissertation. Yeah. Right, because for you, um, and I don't want to mischaracterize you, but you, you want to expand the conceptions and methodologies of science. And so it incorporates, so science incorporates diff- procedures that we would, in today's day and age, not think of as scientific, like communal drug experiences. <clears throat> well, it's not, it's not so much that I want to expand science, per se. That might be a consequence. But for me, I feel like it was, it's a good project to um, delineate the limits of science and, and, the, and the limits of mythology, or the yeah. mythic, mythic consciousness, mythic th- mythical thinking, and seeing what they actually are. Yeah. And part of my argument is that in the development of the Euro-modern world, science gets positioned against mythology, right? Mm-hmm. And there becomes, but of course, the problem is that like myths are just part of what human people do. <laughs> so part of what happens is that certain mythical ways of being or thinking get fused into science. Mm-hmm. Um, and also certain kinds of real work with our mythic sense of self and our mythic world gets completely rejected and you get all these terrible myths like white supremacy and the future of humanity is in the European world and all these things that, um, even if you just read a few history books, even during that time, weren't really true. But then you start getting all this production of historical artifacts, production of narratives and stories that reinforce that worldview about primitives and savages and the, 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 the futures in Europe's hands and among other kinds of myths. And, and you have a culture, like you said, that's, that's, that doesn't really value, especially in America, a lot of good rituals. Um, and so by trying to figure out what actually are science's limits, that in its sense can then expand science, right? Because if you understand what science can and can't do, that does include room for more things. I do think that part of, and like I said, for some of the things that were labeled as mythical practices could actually be viewed as science according to the framework you're in, right? So for example, certain types of um, certain types of psych- psychedelic experiments into the consciousness this is could, be framed, could be yeah. framed as scientific, right? And in fact, um, Precise. Though, though they wouldn't have used this language, you find that there are, there are schools of Buddhism and uh, uh, um, Hinduism, as well as in uh, Africa and... Um, um, Native Americans who did view these these explorations of consciousness and trance and transcendence as part of a frame of a general exploration into the world that was linked with science, right? For example, yes. um, um, for example, in uh, in the Akan in Ghana, right, one of the peoples there called the Akan, the philosopher was actually among the groups of healers, mm-hmm. right, like the med- the medicine person and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And one thing they did was they would put you in a trance and help you figure out the the ego identifications 
that are basically <clears throat> screwing you up, right? Because you end, you end up defining something that sometimes you define something that's crucial to yourself as outside of yourself, right? You can that can be really big. I'm not that. And if that's necessary to be a whole person, you're going to have a very weird life, right? Yeah. Um, like, you're going to have a, you're going to struggle in a lot of ways, right? Um, and so part of what the philosopher can do is to, one, un- help understand what kinds of, like, connections you've made and yeah. what types of, and what type of logical structure of opposite and, and me and not me and stuff have you created, and then do a ritual of trance of some sort and reorient that. Yeah. No, I compl- I yeah, I completely agree with everything that you just said. And yeah, drug experiences have traditionally been conceptualized as falling outside of the purview of science. One thing that I'm glad about is now more scientific research is being done on psychedelics mm-hmm. and it's clear. It's clear, I think at this point that certain psychedelics like mushrooms can be therapeutic and can have all kinds of ethical benefits. It's been mm-hmm. shown that they help alleviate depression and some other Um, mental afflictions as well to the question as to whether psychedelics can also disclose some metaphysical truths about reality yeah i'm personally agnostic about that but i'm open to that based upon the profound experiences that i've had that we talked about last time and also going back to what you're just saying uh communal drug experiences right you'll have these communal drug experiences where it's one thing if we all take a psychedelic and then we see completely different things and have our own unique experiences but you have to my understanding, instances where you'll have a group of people taking the same psychedelic and they all have the same experience. Yeah, you see it. You see How it, do you explain that? Yeah, you see a lot of, um, there are moments where in, in African, Native American, European, where multiple people will see the same thing, right? In a, right. In a certain state. It, and it can be not necessarily psychedelic induced too, just religiously or whatever things. That people will have the same experience, and that there could a be book. a priming effect. Maybe I mean there are ways to explain it away. So there but, could yeah, be, but, but the problem with Thomas Kuhn says is that science itself also has priming effects, right? right. Where you go through a whole process to become a scientist, right? <laughs> Why is that not a priming effect, right? But the fact that something was suggest you shown an image or you saw, you know, what I'm saying that's the thing is that that's the problem is that. Things that are part of this, these, these, um, like that's I said, point. myth becomes this kind of like projection concept that science is going to then define itself as not being, right? We don't <laughs> have the priming effect yet. We make people get PhDs that take five or six years, and there's no priming. There's no socialization. Yeah, you learn this. You learn this paradigm uh, of science and the conceptual tools that go along with that, and that itself is a kind of priming. And then yeah. you learn how to view the world through that conceptual lens yeah, and of contemporary science. Yeah, and so the idea that the socialization you get from working around people, being at a university, all these things wouldn't affect how you view the world, right? Whereas imagine if science, just imagine if science was done, uh, was not done in universities, wasn't even done in laboratories, but was done like only like, maybe there was, like pop-up laboratory but it's only done in like remote isolated forests <laughs> that's just a the science would eventually become very different after 100 years because the what you would be like how you would feel about the world how you would feel about what you were doing mm-hmm. would change right and so for me like for some psychedelics there are some things that we could say are part of science or you're a modern science. And, I, and, I, and some of my language shifts a lot because I'm still working out exactly where I stand with a lot of these things. Yeah, But on the other hand, some of the results of, of um, a psychedelic experience will be, myth, will be more mythical and not scientific necessarily, right? Yeah. yeah. So, to even, so to me, putting, taking science 
so so Thomas Kuhn says that science has paradigms right within it but I wonder if briefly uh, just for the listeners briefly describe Thomas Kuhn and his his basic oh yeah vision because he's a big player here yeah so Thomas Kuhn wrote in like was like the 60s he wrote the on scientific revolution structure of science science structure of scientific revolutions and Basically, he argued that when it comes to revolutions, like shifts from one paradigm to another. So paradigm is like a, I don't know, it's like a, like a, like a overarching frame of reference for knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Or explanatory. Like a very, very, yeah, broad Expl- sweeping theory. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. And that it's... Um, like, like Newtonian yeah, physics, for example. Newtonian, Newtonian uh, physics versus um, Einstein's relative phys- Like those are two huge framework shifts. Right. And the main one, the big one he uses is um, the... Copernicus versus... Yeah, the geocentric versus yeah. heliocentric shift. Right. He says a lot of these big shifts, the narrative is like, oh, like, the truth revealed itself, and then, like, and then the scientists kind of just got lockstep in, like, everyone agreed, right? Um, it's a certain narrative, like a myth about science itself and how it functions. But the actual reality is that there's all kinds of things that aren't necessarily endemic to science itself or part of the scientific process that go into why we shift from one paradigm to another, right? Yeah. Um, and that a lot of times has to do with, like, it can have to do with uh, temperaments or, um, or situation of scientists themselves. It can have to do with the, um, whether or not people are getting paid to hold certain beliefs. <laughs> um, you know, for example, if you're... You know, like this comes back to climate change, right? If you're, if all your grant money comes from working on cars, and then this other group of people start saying, "No, we need to get rid of cars and start moving on to buses or other things," I mean, that might you might feel a little more resistant to some of their results, right? You're not going to really be like, "Okay, yeah," you're going to be like, "No, I need to see like 10, 15 different studies from you know all these different sites to really change my view." Whereas if someone else is saying that actually carbon um, from cars isn't that big of a deal. You might not need any study besides that one. Like, see, yeah, I knew it. But right. scientists have that too, right? Um, and it's not to say that science is like all a matter of like of psychology, but just that there are some there are some processes that are outside of like values or norms that are outside. I don't know if it'd be outside, but are not, but are not um, a part of the the method the process of doing science itself. Mm-hmm. That makes us so we shift from one paradigm to another. It's not so much that we just make a discovery and then everything does a ripple through the scientific world, but that's the way that scientific um, revolutions were thought about. Right, and just this concept of shifting from one scientific paradigm to another was itself kind of like a novel thing because there's this traditional conception of science where we're just building up cumulative knowledge throughout the centuries and we're getting closer and closer to the truth, mm-hmm. right? And he kind of flipped that in its head and he's like, no, actually, there are these periods of normal science. Right, which are followed by these periods of what he revolutionary science, where you have that paradigm shift. You know, so it's a lot more chaotic and not as linear as many people would like to think scientific progress is. Yeah, and right. he also says he himself says that science paradigms are more like a a language for determining, for speaking to reality. And I think that, um, and that you get to the question of like, um, it's also open up questions of what we would call like reductive sciences, right, about do sciences reduce to other ones, and I remember right. I was reading some books that, in some cases, some sciences just, they don't, they don't reduce to each other, right, they, they can't be fully explained in terms of a, a, a more, 
um, primary model. And even um, right. Stephen Hawking said he, I think in his last book, one of his last books, he said he's not sure if there really can be a grand unified theory of everything or are there just certain types of, or we do we as human beings because we want to figure out certain kinds of variables or track certain types of processes in the universe, we create models, but those models can't necessarily combine into it. There might not be a possibility that right. the same model that explains why Saturn rotates around the sun the way it does will also explain quantum indeterminism. They may not link because of the because of how we're looking at. And I feel like most scientists functions. will assume this kind of <coughs> this kind of unity of scientific knowledge picture, right? They'll assume that facts about biology can ultimately be reduced to facts about physics, and maybe those are the most fundamental facts. But yeah, I, would, I wouldn't maybe say that's that, not the case. Yeah, I wouldn't say that scientists generally do that, but I would say that some certainly do, and it seems like that's part of the the impression that comes off, right? And that's part of, and it's also part of how like funding seems to be distributed <laughs> um, um, for various sciences. Um, but it does seem like yeah that there's there's that in terms of how we under how I come to how I came to understand myself as a person in this education system in this society, I did get the impression that these things were uh, these things were presented as interrelated unified whole yeah um and yeah, that sure. um and that science had a certain kind of authority in our society right and that authority came to be questioned very much so in like the 50s 60s so even early in that edmund husserl was talking about that that there was there's a crisis of the sciences that really started happening in the late um uh the, the early 20th century Right. Yeah, and if we can bring this to philosophy of mind just for a second, I feel like that authority that science has, to, to, to my mind, explains the prevailing endorsement among philosophers of physicalism. You know, yes. the idea that it's all just atoms in the void and yes. that science will ultimately be able to explain everything via yeah. naturalistic mechanisms and yeah. it's just a physical universe. As you know, I, I don't think that's the case. I'm a panpsychist. I think that mind is primacy. That's mm -hmm. a whole other conversation that we could have. Yeah. But to the and you know people will say, well, panpsychism is crazy. You think consciousness is fundamental? And I'm like, physicalism is crazy. Yeah. You think the mind can be reduced to dull matter? That's yeah. insane. Yeah, I know. To my mind, that's more counterintuitive. It's just that our intuitions have been played upon by the culture that we're in. Mm -hmm. I feel like you know that's not mm -hmm. it's not like panpsychism is abstracted away from culture intuitively a lot more crazy than physicalism. No, not at all. I think it's just a reflection of, again, the culture that we're in and the fact that science has so much authority in that culture and is kind of painting this physicalist picture. Yeah, and, there, and there's also a certain kind of, and this is the fruit of a, a particular, and this is where other books like, like when I'm looking at um, The Invention of Africa or... Um, um, by um, Madimbe, uh, Madimbe or Foucault or um, Husserl, all these people have talked about the ways that that even this idea towards physicalism has its whole history and heritage behind it that creates a context where physicalism makes sense. Yeah. Right. Because one of the things that Husserl yeah. says is that, for example, this is why he has this. He has what he calls um, transcendental idealism. Yeah. Um, because he says like, but he's not not like in a Kantian sense, but he's saying that, in his view, you can't even, you can't even get to um, consciousness is like is, is like primary and present, 
but there's no right. human being who can get outside the framework of consciousness. No. And even the structure of time and and um, um, the way we experience the world is, is a part of structure of consciousness. So part yes. of for him, part of getting a secure science is getting a secure understanding of how consciousness actually functions, yes. and this hence the move to phenomenology, which you might like phenomenology of consciousness. I do. I love it. That's why. That's why I like his phenomenological method so much because it treats consciousness as primary. And right, it says, okay, we're gonna bracket all other assumptions that we have about the world, mm -hmm. right? Rather, whether the world is physical at bottom, whether even there is an external world, right? Mm -hmm. Take all of your metaphysical assumptions and just throw them out the window for a second. Yes. Let's just, wh what do we have? What we have in this moment is conscious experience. Let's start from there and just try to describe that to yeah. try to make some progress in understanding yeah. the world. That resonates with me. Yeah, and, he, and the thing is, he was a mathematician. So he was very, initially, so he was very much about trying to get to first principles. Um, and so you get this so the question becomes where 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 does this need come from to write subjectivity out of human experience yeah. and why is it successful because it seems like it's it's deeply counterintuitive and that um it doesn't lead to you know like a really good understanding of our reality but there's a book that you probably want to look into that's what interesting is about the debate between Bergson and Einstein. So uh, uh, Henry Bergson was like the like big intellectual. Like he was like um, basically what Einstein was back then. Like he was like the biggest intellectual in the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he's French, and he had this more phenomenological sense of time and what time was, and he felt that rel relativity. <laughs> he felt that time wasn't an objective phenomenon, right? But And that relativity was trying to make time too objective and that some of the aspects of ordinary time, like I'm not an expert in this enemy, I'm just re I'm just recounting something. So yeah. I could be wrong on these matters. But they had like a, first they had like a conflict where like he was, Bergson was at this um, conference and they started talking about relativity and time and Bergson was like, it's garbage and like and eventually they, say <laughs> nah. like a, they had like a debate or some talks but this this woman she's like a historian of ideas um and she basically is talking about that that it's not so much like that you would think that like oh it was just so overwhelming that einstein just blew in his theories just blew away everything and that's why Bergson's view was not championed anymore a lot of it had to do with a lot of other things of, of terms of other scientific progress a need to have a secular, a need to have a um, a real place for a real center of authority for sec in a secular society, and that being scientific, right? There's all these other external factors that are part of why um, relativity um, and this kind of more objective picture of the universe comes in to become dominant. Mm. And Einstein also has a a talk with a Tagore, I think his name is Rabindranath Tagore. I'm probably butchering that name, but they have a debate where they go back and forth, and basically like Tagore is like, yeah, I don't really believe there's an outside world, and <laughs> and they're like debating, and because Tagore he's believed there's like you know like one, like there is no reality without humans, right? Uh huh. Um, and they're like debating back and forth, but if you get when you get to the end of the interview, basically Einstein ends up saying like, I think I'm probably more religious than you are. 
Hmm. I just it's just something I have faith in that there's an objective world. Hmm. Something I believe in. <laughs> you know, after they debate, you should read it. It's really interesting. Where Einstein, because Einstein was a cool guy. Yeah, he he's yeah. a cool. I mean, he was he was very self aware and and he would even like when he would get pushed, often he would say like, no, he'd be like I just believe it's there, right? Yeah. Um, whereas Tagore was like, how can you even how can you even postulate a world outside of like consciousness when he's, he's kind because of, it's impossible to actually adopt the view from nowhere yeah he's kind of arguing so how do you know that, that that perspective exists yeah he's kind of arguing with like Husserl argues um also Sartre um Sartre also makes the same claim in the critique of dialectical reason where he's like all science is done by human activity with for, with human desires human meaning human seeking human uh, right and but then the thing that's produced by this very human process then gets presented as if it's not a part of humanity at all. <laughs> Which is something we've been talking about in the seminar the yeah. past couple of weeks. Just the idea that science is intrinsically value-laden. And it's not as completely objective as everyone makes it and out so, to be. And so, you see, and so you see the continuation. This is where the mythic stuff comes in, right? You see the continuation of the God, right? That there's a need to produce. So, okay, there's no God. Right, which is the view from every you know, the view outside of human reality. Right, so what is supposedly there? right? Supposedly this is the the movement, but then you say, well, no, there's no God, but there's this objective knowledge that is also outside of reality that we're all beholden to, and that we can like present, and then everyone else has to come. So science, to it. so science in a weird way has kind of filled the gap of religion. It basically, and they're yeah. usually and basically, and that's what conceptualized as being diametrically opposed, which yeah. is interesting. And this is a, yeah, this is, you see, because it's a very like it's like a fight between like siblings, right? And those can be the, <laughs> those can be the most bitter, because basically science is basically often saying that like what is the ob- the objective knowledge? The objective knowledge is that knowledge from no from no point. Right. Yep. That 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 we have to bend ourselves around. Um, and then the and danger is that we're objectifying away subjectivity itself. Yeah. I mean, take it to the most extreme point. You have a limitivist in the middle of the 20th century who are actually denying the existence of consciousness. Serious yeah. academics. The yeah. fact that that no, was I, I, there's popular. There's actually some people. There's actually some people here. It's astonishing to me. Yeah, I was talking to a woman. She was in um, maybe linguistics or some science, and she was just like, "Yeah, like it's just." A, she said, "It's just like an illusion." Of, Consciousness is an illusion. I've never understood that. Yeah, but that's the illusion is consciousness. If consciousness is an illusion, then the illusion is consciousness. Yeah. Let me get go down a whole other rabbit hole here. But, but that's but that's one of the big things is that this whole you don't have to have a society grounded in and there are religious societies around the world that didn't have this like transcendental view from nowhere like like absolute authority attributed to a being outside of the activity of the world, right? And that becomes the Euro-Christian version of God. But do you need that without, in order to not have chaos? Do things just become dangerously relative if you don't have something, whether it's an objective world, whether it's a God, some higher? Not necessarily. I mean, because, like, for example, you could have like there are other things you can put in that place. Like, for example, Habermas is trying to put in things like um, different layers of democratic consensus. He's a hard, he's basically like, he's like a liberal secularist. He's trying to preserve this stuff. And he recognizes that, yeah, like for him, scientific rationality isn't the rationality that's grounding because of all these problems. It's, for him, it's communicative. It's the language, it's dial, it's a structure of grammar, of dialogue that's, A, has certain universal applications that every human has a commute language. 
but B, that's the that's the means by which everything else is produced, right? Right. And I have some problems with with Habermas, but he has but he has some good ideas. Um, but you see, that's very different than this like transcendental objective knowledge that's being produced, which actually seems kind of close to the God's thing, right? Yeah. Um, that you, instead of God, you, you take out God and you replace it with you just replace God with nature, and it's like maybe that view is outdated. Yeah. Like it seems like that's a that's a layover from that move that occurred in like the 1800s, you know, 1700s. Um, like deism, right? Where like there's a God, but like that made everything, but it's like the, the universe is like a ticking machine. The blind clockmaker or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's Just like, sets it in motion and yeah. steps away. But even that, the last, a lot of, but what a lot of philosophers have, have argued now is that even that represents, even the idea of this objective knowledge represents a, um, um, a way of obscuring these systems of authority and structure and that you don't have relative you don't necessarily collapse into relativism you just have to be more clearly about what systems of authority you want to exist for knowledge and why mm-hmm. right and that this idea of like the object is still basically this the the objective knowledge is just like a fetish right it's just like a the same this the, that's the irony the same time that black that uh europeans are criticizing africans for creating fetishes that stand in for god or that objects that supposedly have power, they're also constructing the biggest fetish of all, which is like this objective scientific knowledge. Right. And that what they're looking at is actually a reflection, a projection of their own consciousness, right? Right. And that's what, but that's what they're doing is they're, constru- as they, to allow them to construct this actual fetish, they have to then say that, no, these people are doing it and we're not. <laughs> right. And so you're left with, and this is where, this is where a lot of, this, now we're in the real realm of postmodernism. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. This really connects to the postmodernism. Yeah. You just have these two different frameworks for interpreting reality. And going back to the question that I asked earlier, like, is there that view from nowhere? It seems like one framework has to be right or both are wrong or, or neither. Or maybe we just have, we, like I said, this is where existentialism comes in, right? We have certain commitments. Right? Yeah. We have certain commitments or things we want to achieve in the world. And this is bad, bad to Nietzsche, right? We just have to be honest about what we really want, <laughs> about what society is supposed to be about, right? right? We're hiding behind, I mean, you could say the same thing about the same thing that he was saying about the, the way Christianity is siphoning our vitality and making us break our potential to this like God figure. You could say the same thing to this objective um, scientific knowledge thing that's really a, a group of people with the history that are like right, especially when it comes to human knowledge, right? That are creating this information about the world. But in reality, we just- That's we, their projected essence. So in some going ways, back to the yeah. basic existentialist motto, existence precedes essence. We don't live, we, we weren't created in the image of God. We weren't created to fulfill some purpose. We just exist. So essence doesn't precede existence. We exist and then we project whatever essence we want, we create whatever meaning we want, and then there are different yeah. cultures that are creating different meanings yeah, and projecting so, so, different so existence is like, if you imagine existence would then be like a, um, and maybe, and this is what it means to be made in God's image, right? Existence is a, 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 um, a it's hard to come up with a metaphor for it, but it's a, um, I wanna say, I'm gonna say field, but just, you know, just for now. But you can say it's a field of like infinite probabilities. Mm. Right, uh, a, a conscious field of a, a field of a conscious field of infinite probabilities, and that through action we instantiate some of those probabilities, and by ne- and by necessity, prevent some others from existing. Then there comes the process of defining yourself by the things that you create, 
Yeah. Right? Um, and by the commitments and the types of action things you make. And some of those were were were, were termed more by needs, like I'm going to die if I don't do these things, so I got to do this, <laughs> you know, like. Right. Um, but the possibilities existed that we just didn't actualize them because we would die, right? Um, so if that's what really what, and there, because there are Christian existentialists, there are religious existentialists. Kierkegaard. Yeah. He's a Christian existentialist. Yeah, so it has to do with um, what actually God is and what it actually means to be made in God's image, right? Yeah. Um, to me, it points to our creativity, which is tied to our um, unknowable potential, our unknowable possibility to shape the world around us. Yeah. But but you but the problem is that you and, and that's where so now we're in, so, so now we move into the realm of those who begin to criticize this kind of objective scientific entity right that is basically saying like yeah that's just like this is like a fetish right it's just like a stand-in for that represents having absolute knowledge um, and just because you say you don't like Hegel you still do his science you know yeah. um and so and recognizing uh, to just uh bring drugs back into the the picture here recognizing just the amount of you know you you said existence is how'd you put it i said it could be understood as a f- this is just what i'm coming up with right yeah no, a, f- like a field of um infinite possibilities and probabilities i know and you you can see just how much creative energy and possibilities there are for consciousness by taking yeah. certain psychedelics by yeah. taking dmt you can yeah, understand that there are experiences which are radically different and more blissful and more divine than you're having on a regular basis yeah it's like remember when i talked to you earlier about cloud levy strauss when he said that anthropology might actually be more about self-discovery an actual discovery right. about people is that you, yeah. um, you you experience the deserts of your mind, these areas of, of consciousness or being in the world that are blocked off to you or locked off to you because that's not how you're socialized. Well, I imagine that um, psych- certain psychedelic experiences could be, according to what society you're in, another way to explore those deserts and perhaps and perhaps plant things there yeah. or see, what, see what's there and maybe bring something back, right? In which... Because there are ways of there, there there are ways of there. I'm sure if there are people in the world, the way they live and what they cultivate about themselves, that experience of being human is probably so different than ours in a lot of ways, um, because of what we do. That and that's why I mean you can see that's why a lot of times when immigrants, I mean a lot of times when immigrants come here or when we go other places, we feel alienated, we feel weird because yeah. the experience that it is to be that person is in that society is very different. And that's and that's along like a common project of human life caused by the damage of colonialism, but there are places that are even different than that, and there are realms in the mind that are still not accessed yet, right? Yeah. There are places that we can go that are still not accessed, um, and those things, those regions, these words or these forms of consciousness or ways of being in the world, they merge in ways that sometimes aren't always in our control, but sometimes we can invite, we can invite them to come or we can explore those areas right? yeah and that's why it's just a lot of these substances they clearly have a role to play in these pursuits of inner discovery it's so bizarre to me that they've been stigmatized in our culture and there are historical reasons for that mm-hmm. and that's like, also because that's also part of the the image of science right part of it is that right. science is done i said part of the way science began to define itself is that part of what made its knowledge objective and true is that all those um, um, all those other forms of knowledge are excluded 
right? I mean, right. Bertrand Russell is very adamant about what was the proper mode of consciousness to knowledge receive, by acquaintance, right? Oh yeah, to receive knowledge, to receive truthful knowledge, like the mode of. I mean, I think he said something like a, you know, like a, a, like a, like a British Englishman, like shortly after he eaten lunch or something like that was like the best mindset for doing science because like you know like we are fully awake you've like eaten like you've got your energy and like that is let's like do a, some science yeah like you can really if your mind is very clear you're not going to get tired that's but even that's a particular form of consciousness right right um and other forms but those forms exist and like i said a lot of these cultures had lots of now this is now this, this concept is coming back with the idea of um and certain feels like neurodiversity, right? Where the idea is that people have ADAD or schizophrenia or various kinds of neurological um, yep. systems being set up, being particular, are not like disordered or don't have problems, but are just different. And the person that's yeah. talking about this neurodiversity concept is mapping that onto biodiversity. They're saying it's like, just how biodiversity makes the, the ecosystem better, this, she's arguing that neurodiversity makes the um, um, human system better. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. There's so much consciousness these days about other kinds of diversity, ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. um, neurodiversity should be more accommodated as well. You know, there are people who are schizophrenic, let's say, and they're not abiding by the unwritten rules of being polite or something like that yeah. and people are saying hey you have to act this way well yeah. they can't act that way because of their, their mental yeah their consciousness right yeah so we should have more respect for that and understand yeah. right. that and, and but also, learn how to accommodate their behaviors based upon but, their consciousness but it's not just a matter of respect and accommodation neurodiversity is the idea that that person has something to contribute as well right maybe it is maybe it's through the arts yeah. Maybe it's through um, um, philosophy. Maybe it's through um, like a schizophrenic person. Maybe it's through I don't know something we came in. I don't know that we came in think about right that these various people because of how their mind is perhaps if we give them more support more structure give them a way that they can express themselves and also be incorporated into the world because I think part I think one thing that makes schizophrenia so bad in a lot of people I'm not expert on this but I imagine just also being isolated. Yeah. And this is where the this is where the blindness comes in, right? There's nothing that says that because you have schizophrenia, you shouldn't be fully integrated into the community. And other cultures would do that, right? Um, from Franz Fanon, um, a psychologist, philosopher, and revolutionary, he wrote a nice piece on the mental illness among Algerians and how they believe that a lot of mental illness is caused by uh, jinn or genies. And so, but those people are like very much integrated into society because they're like prophets or or otherworldly they have otherworldly knowledge or they're blessed by god or if they have any problems the problems are caused by the jinn they're not the, the human the person's humanity is still celebrated even if they have some issues right but they also could have knowledge they give and he says that he doesn't necessarily agree about the like i said the 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 metaphysical claims but he says that the Algerians see the person as a full human being that just happens to have a possession. But that can mean that because they're still a full human, that can mean that they have things to share and contribute, and the problems they have shouldn't be blamed on them. And he says compared to the Western system where people who have mental illness, now we can say that term because it makes that's, that's very much in our context, right? Uh -huh. People who have mental illness um, are, um, are viewed as 
burdens to society or threats or dangers or um, um, things that need to be shameful things. Yeah. And I imagine all those, all that makes mental illness worse. Yeah, and this... Um, Even depression. Depre- it, I mean, I see so many people are, that I know are depressed. And um, and you can see that a lot of the life patterns and behaviors make depression very... I mean, because to me, depression to me, depression should be a signal that something in the environment is not working well. Yeah. You know, I think that... I don't think it's that normal. What? Normal is the wrong word. But I don't think it's... I don't think it's... A, I don't think it's a, like a... A natural part of the human experience, and I say that knowing what, what, what all the, the things we have to trouble that concept. I'm, I'm still I'm saying it to be depressed. Yeah. So I mean, I'll just I'll just, <coughs> raise, I'll just raise the I guess I don't know what to call it worry that I raised earlier when we were talking about this before the podcast. Mm-hmm. But um, just that it seems like there's something wrong with. I want to recognize that people that have quote unquote mental illnesses have something to contribute and they are fully human and they are beautiful and there's nothing that's wrong with them without necessarily supporting their delusions which might in fact be delusions right so I think there's something completely wrong with contemporary society where we're just medicating these people and kind of casting them to the side but in that picture that you just painted where those people are hailed as prophets that are in touch with the word of God it seems like there could be something problematic about that as well yeah yeah no and this is the this is where because no system's perfect. Mm-hmm. But one thing we're gonna say is that when we, I didn't just say that they're prophets, and and because prophet, you know, especially in Islam, there's only one. <laughs> there's been some ones before, but there's one, and there ain't no more coming after. I don't think. Um, so they're definitely not that. But uh, and that helps, and that helps with how they're understood, right? They're not like like ultimate authorities, right? The th- the authorities, and this is often more like the um, are. Similar people authorities or not, like scientists, um, 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 imams, and things like that, right? Um, politicians, right? These are people who are authorities. Um, these people, and even for even when they speak to God, it has to be interpreted, right? So a lot of times there's a, there are whole systems that are made to interpret to figure out like what's real knowledge, what is just delusions, what is something that's actually useful. How does that? You know, what I'm saying there's a lot more going on than just like. There's a person that's schizophrenia. They they speak about something or have a vision about something, and then everyone's like, oh, "Okay, yeah, like we're gonna change it." Nah, because like, just like our society, every society has inertia, right? Yeah. Um, and that and that inertia helps keep everything going. It helps people develop and grow. Yeah. But but what they did do is they made they they incorporated ways for that these peoples uh, to contribute mm-hmm. to that process, right? Yeah. Um, and so. Um, that's more the thing. That's more the thing that I, that I'm, that I, that we're talking about. Not so much saying that like, oh, they're they're like they're. We're not we're not talking about making someone who's schizophrenic the new authority subject in the right. hard sense. Though we could. But it's but, it's more about just finding a role for them to play instead of casting them aside. Yeah, or and allowing and for, them to exercise whatever skills or. Yeah, and and for and for I mean, for me, I don't have as for me, I don't have as much problem with with. Uh, but because I mean, there's all kinds of things. I haven't done as much research on this, so I'm going to be talking much more generally and more not anecdotally, but things that I've read. But I remember this one guy. His the kid had like bipolar or schizophrenia or something, and this guy, he was a he's an African doctor, and he was like, oh, he he asked the parents this is in America if they let his um, their son spend time in this, in this guy's village, because they said this guy's probably a healer. 
Yeah. He said he went there. He stayed there for like four years, and like they did the healing and like all that stuff. And his, and he was healing people or doing whatever he needs, whatever he was supposed to do. And he said his problems went away. Yeah. Well, see, yeah, that's the thing. To play devil's advocate, it's hard to know a lot of times whether certain people that you would write off as mentally ill in our context are delusional or not. And that that fact can be made salient to me when just thinking when you just think about different drug experiences. Yeah. Right? Like DMT. You seem to be in contact with these interdimensional entities. Yeah, my brother told me about experience he had on DMT and I was like yeah. yeah. So it's easy to say, oh, well, that's just, you're just, again, going back to what you're saying, you're just exploring the desert landscapes of your own mind, and that's just a manifestation of your own mind. Is it? Or are you actually coming into contact with interdimensional entities? Yeah, is the voice that you're hearing a voice from God? Or is it just a manifestation of your yeah, own delusional and every, mind? And everything I'm talking about these things is, is hypothetical. Even when I say deserts of the mind, uh, it could be different or it could be different orientations. Um, it could be, because um, um, according to what consciousness is, right, it could be another entity, right? Um, I'm open to it. And I am too. So I'm really speaking to But I talked to, nah, <laughs> I talked to, um, I remember I was talking to a guy who did, um, um, it's like Ken Lemble, like one of those, um, one of the, um, the African religions that exist in the Americas. And Canada is associated with like Brazil and the Puerto and the um, and the um, Portuguese speaking world, right? Mm -hmm. And he said that um, no, sorry, it wasn't Canada. It was Santeria, mm -hmm. Santeria, which is like the in the Spanish speaking, like Cuba and other places. Sorry about that. It was Santeria, and he said that the spirits of Santeria, he said they're like different dimensions in the force. Mm -hmm. What does that mean, right? Right. <laughs> How do you, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, he's using, to explain to me a phenomenon, he's using something that's like a pop culture reference that seemed to capture something. So he's saying it's like the force, but he's saying that, but even that, he's saying there's different dimensions in the force. So he's saying that the force, and so in the Star Wars, the force is light and dark. Yeah. Right? But he's saying that there's, that the force, that there is something like the force that exists, and there's different dimensions in it, and the Santeria uh, priest or priestess is in tune and can move within these different frequencies in the force or different um, um, what was the word I used? Dimensions. Dimensions, within yeah. Within the force. And that's the thing. It's so easy to write that off from our western scientific point of view as being new age guru nonsense but it might just be that they're coming from a different context and they have different yeah. tools. There are these questions of like what is knowledge supposed to do? Yeah. Right. A lot of times when you say something is new age nonsense, oftentimes what you're really saying is that there's no, it doesn't fit in my framework and the things that I want to accomplish. I can't, I can't reliably do things. But a lot of these, um, um, a lot of these different aspects are just they've been purposely excluded. I mean, think about the, the if you learn here's the thing about the witch Salem witch trials. Yeah. Right. There was a massive murdering and torturing of women in Europe. And in the United States, to perfectly remove to remove the existence of some of this stuff, right? Um, well, one to remove the existence of it, right? To get rid of witches, people who did trances or healing and all that stuff. But two, to get their knowledge that could be translated. Because a lot of people don't think about it that way. It's like if I make you confess, what did you do to make X Y Z happen? 
and you're like, oh, you know, like I, I used this leaf and I dipped it in this, and they're writing it down. I'm like, okay, now you get a you get a medicine, right? Mm-hmm. That there was a way to siphon the knowledge and the experience of these women into the dominant structure because there still was this external thing that it was part of a different system, right? And so, because think about it, these women are confessing, you think they just burned those confessions? No, they're telling, you know, if you torture someone, it wasn't just like you're doing doing witchcraft, okay, yeah, that's part of it, but also it's like, what did you do? Oh, we use this plant. Oh, you use this plant like that? Oh, all right, write that down. Then we'll yeah, burn you. Yeah, that's, that's what they do. They were like, I'm sure, like you, find, I'm sure they would like. Oh, you use this plant like. Oh, okay. What'd you do with it? Oh, we mixed it with like honey and salt, and ground it up, and then that makes it so this happens. Oh, okay. And then we we do like, we we do a dance or whatever. Maybe they would include that. Mm-hmm. But they would be like, oh, we didn't know that honey and this go together because that was part of like what the authority of the church did is that any knowledge that was from outside the church that went through certain processes could then become sanctified or holy oh. or legitimate. So that's what happened in the colonies. That's what happened. They took all kinds of this knowledge. They, they took it from people and then it got translated because it was now Christian philosophy, ideas, scientific techniques, engineering tactics, medicines, or what, yeah, or medicines. And they took that and it said, okay, well, now that you took away some of maybe the, the ritual aspect of it, or well, now we'll take it in and now it's, it's like a Christianized We'll thing keep too. what we like, discard what we don't like. Yeah, we'll keep so, what fits into our paradigm or whatnot. Exactly. And so, some of, so a lot of the people, even this idea of the various New Age things, um, some of this has to do with, um, like I said, some of, it, like some of it clearly doesn't fit scientific. Um, some of it very much doesn't fit scientific um, standards that we have now. Um, and I'm not against the existence of those standards, but it's important to know where they've come from and that some of these things like, um, like I have this book called um, Blackfoot Physics that goes into, um, basically makes some arguments about that, that Native American peoples do have science, that they're not all like primitive mythic people, but they have like their own, they actually, what they're doing is science is different. Now there are some problems with what he's talking about, but he was a student of um, David Bohm the physicist, mm-hmm. and he was saying that some of their, some he was arguing that some of what some of these Native American communities in America accomplished were quite advanced. Like, for example, their um, language, like one of this, one of the people's language, I don't remember which what it was, I think it might have been Blackfoot or, I think it might have been Chippewa, is like much more verb-oriented and process-oriented, and other languages are like that too. But he brought some of them, um, the guy David Pete brought some of these speakers to David Bohm, and they were talking about their language, and he was like, yeah, like, I actually do feel like this is the kind of language we should have now. Like, our language is too noun-centered, too static for how in flux reality really is. So so much of it starts with language. That's what I love about Ludwig Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. just that insight that... So many of our problems or what we think are philosophical problems are actually just constructions of our language, and they're not actually real problems. Mm-hmm. So we just need to get clear on the underlying grammar of our language in order to dissolve a lot of these problems instead of actually solving them. Like just, again, mm-hmm. going back to the importance of framing, a lot of, yeah, just the way that we conceptualize the world is just based upon that and determined by that. Yeah, but this goes back to the medicine thing where... In this, in this book, there's actually a pretty good story about um, a guy who um, 
I'm not sure what nation he was from, one of the you know American nations. He basically his his the shaman gave him water. And uh, and he gave him like sacred blessed water, and he said, okay, whatever you do, like don't let the doctors see it, right? But drink it, but don't let them see it. And they, they one time the scientists like, and I think this is more like a like a like a like a like an educative story than like a like a actual story. Right. But then the, the, the when the guy sleep, he leave, he leaves it out, and the doctor takes it because he's been seeing him drink it, and he's like. What are you doing? But you won't tell him what's going on. He's like, this is like, say, he tells him like, it's, oh, this is like holy water, and he's like, the sign is too deeply skeptical of it. And then he, well, the guy's sleeping. The doctor takes it and analyzes, like, oh, it's just ordinary water. Like, I knew it wasn't anything significant. But the whole point is that the shaman's like, the guy doesn't understand what makes the medicine the medicine, right? It's right. not so much, it's not so much this molecular structure, but maybe where it's from. Um, the ritual or process that the guy went in before he was given the water, certain words that were said, this kind of a relationship of meaning that might have been established, or re- psychic or psychic or spiritual power that's that's in the process that's represented by the water or things like that all contribute to healing. And I say this to link to the idea of the placebo effect. Remember, like the placebo effect was like this thing that meant that like, oh, you could take a sugar pill. And think that you could be getting, and think that you're getting better, and then start getting better. Like wow, like the mind is like it tricks you. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. But the funny thing is now scientists are like, wait, the mind can actually make you heal yourself. <laughs> the placebo effect is real. Yeah. The fact the fact that the placebo effect exists. Yeah. Means maybe that's something we could build on and cultivate. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Maybe maybe and, and so the scientist was just focusing on like the underlying structure. <laughs> of, yeah, they, of the medicine to yeah. the neglect of all these other processes that might be involved in actually healing the patient. Yeah, and and um, and I want to wrap this up though, just because I got to go. Yeah, and in the same book, they talk about that. Like many people say that that's what um, Americans like, you know, white Americans and stuff that they kill the medicine. They go like rip the plant apart, take out this extract, yeah. and they they reduce a lot of the potency of the actual medication right yeah. because it's 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 part of a process it's picked at the right time um it's part of a process a ritual there's all these things that go into making this medicine heal um certain rituals or or or, or, or so things like that that all go into making it at its most potent healing and what we do is we try to isolate this particular molecule or chemical that we can then and you can look at the outcome right you have you have addiction Right, and it's it's only the Opioid it's only crisis. the underlying chemical that could actually heal. The mind itself couldn't heal. Exactly, but that might be a mistaken framework. Yeah, again, just based upon this like physicalist, it, it's tied to that, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. anyway, we yeah. should wrap up. Anyway, yeah, we went for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for doing this, man. Oh, no I just problem. have a mountain of grading I got to do today. That's why. I yeah. No get problem. Going. But let's do this again sometime. Man. Yeah. Peace.